Welcome to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. I'm Michael Lutz. This is episode nine. The big, big nine. Old, yep, yep. The famous <laughs> the famous big number that everyone loves to acknowledge. Nine. <laughs> it, I, it's very funny to me that we both went to big nine. <laughs> as our big big old nine um th this episode is on games of empire um written by uh the longest named people <laughs> that we that we have um uh, you know talked about so far so it's uh, greg deputer i think i think that's how you say his name greg deputer and nick dyer witherford uh and actually it's the opposite on the book now that i'm looking at it, it is nick dyer witherford and Greg or Grieg Deputer. Yes. Um, did, did you do any biographical research? Anyway, so they are both uh, academics. They're working in Canada. Um, and this, as far as I'm aware for both of them, um, is kind of a... It, it, it is not the continuance of their research now. Or their research now does not necessarily continue from this book. I think that both of them are involved in theories of capitalism still. Um, I don't know that anyone is, like, holding it down for uh, Empire and the Multitude and things like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Someone please correct me if I'm wrong, but I've read I've read uh, a little bit of work from both of them uh, since then, and Greg DePuter is uh, kind of a political economy guy, more of a political economy guy now, um, and so is Dyer Witherford, so... Um, that's, that's my two cents about them. They're both, um, kind of communication and media studies scholars, as you might pick up from it. Um, and this is another one of those books that maybe it's a little bit late in the cycle, but we've talked several times about books that were formative for game studies as a discipline. So this book comes out in 2000 and I want to say eight, but I'm not hundred percent sure. 2009. I was going to say 2009, um, at least for, for paperback. Yeah. So, um, so it's a little late, uh, compared to something like, um, persuasive games from Ian Bogost or cheating from me and called Salvo or any of the other kind of stuff that we've talked about as early 2000s formative, game studies work but um i think this one made a big splash when it came out and for some people it's kind of unreplaceable in the sense of this is one of the first books to really talk about the nitty-gritty material conditions of video game uh, development and video game culture and to try to tie it all together in a unifying field you know, it's kind of grand unified field theory of political mm -hmm. economy, of culture and material practice in, in games. Um, and so for a lot of people, this, this you know, the introduction for this or whatever got excerpted and then put into the, um, you know, the material or, or labor or Marxism segment of their intro to game studies courses. And it's never really left. Yeah, um, and some some people find that really powerful, and some people don't. I think we'll talk about what this book does really well, and what this book uh, maybe doesn't do super well as we'll go through. I have a, I, you know, I'll say at the top, I really like this book. This book is really formative to me when I read it for the first time. I don't know that I think that this book does all all the things I would like it to do. Um, you know, it, it, insofar as the last time when we were reading Gina Bloom, Michael, you had some very in-depth and specific thoughts 
<laughs> and uh, ideas about that book. Yes. I have very specific, in-depth, like, theory, nitty-gritty, mild disagreements at a conference presentation level. Um, <laughs> um, fine, Very fine-grained disagreements with this book. But, but ultimately, I think it's uh, pretty interesting. How how'd you find the book in general, Mike? Um, <clears throat> I think it's good. Uh, I think I read this for the first time probably... I don't remember if it was just before or just after starting grad school. Um, so not terribly long after it came out, just like a couple of years. Um, and what is, I guess, weird is it did not make, and I think this was probably like, it had to do with the fact that I think I was just starting grad school and games were kind of um, very much secondary to me kind of figuring out how, how grad school worked sort of just generally, um, but then also kind of getting acquainted with what, being in my field that is to say early modern stuff um at a grad school level meant so i was sort of reading this as like for fun in my spare time um and it didn't uh i hadn't developed i guess the the kind of weird synthetic faculty um that i have now where i'm constantly like reading things in and out of their disciplines um so this just felt like a game studies book and i was like that was an interesting game studies book i'm glad that they talked about the military stuff because that was a thing that concerned me um but uh rereading it this time i think i probably had the same reaction as you which is to say i really really like this book i think there is so much cool stuff in this book and then there is also some stuff that is kind of like oh, okay like mm, Maybe, maybe not. Uh, some mild disagreements. <laughs> yeah, and I guess maybe that is the... You know, the, I think there's a benefit to a book feeling that way, to some degree, because um, it's a book... That means it's a book that's making strong claims. You know? Um, you, you, can't, you can't... Someone can't read you and think you missed the mark for them if you're not aiming very specifically and in a wholehearted way towards, you know, some sort of target. And so, uh, you know, at least where I think that this book doesn't work for me, it's not because the book is bad or because the argument is bad. It's because they are forcing me to think in depth about a problem, and I come to a different solution to that problem than they, than they do. Um, so I, I like that, at least as, as a, like a pedagogical move. E yes, um, although I think probably the... Like, I think you are probably capable of disagreeing in in a more fine-grained way than i am because uh my my disagreements are actually probably more just like questions where it's like i think that there's probably not going to be a satisfactory answer if i press on this point too much but i want some clarification on what's actually happening and we'll talk mm -hmm. about i guess some of those points when we get to them um but uh yeah yeah i yeah i think that that is a i had several kind of question mark moments across this book that that we'll talk about so um, yeah, let's just dive right in. Um, I want to do a weird thing that we don't really do. So, so I guess I, I want to say two two methodological things that that uh, Michael and I talked about before the show um, began. So, in the introduction, as someone does in a good introduction, um, you have kind of the layout of the entire book. This layout has a lot of terminology in it that gets defined up top that we could spend a whole lot of time talking about the introductions. There's a version of this episode where we, you know, talk for 45 minutes just about the introduction itself. I think that's possible. I think mm -hmm. that's something that this show could do yeah. <laughs> uh, really easily. So what we're going to do is I'm going to say these terms when they come up. And if you hear a term that doesn't make a lot of sense to you, I promise that there is a chapter on it. 
and we'll yes. talk about it in the chapters. So just just sit tight. Just just uh, wait for us to get there. But uh, the second thing I want to say is that what I think is maybe the um, the big thesis statement statementy kind of point in the introduction comes at about halfway through, and I just want to read that before we talk about the rest of the introduction because I think that a lot of things can get confusing to people. Um, because this is a complicated book, both theoretically and in the way it makes its argument. And I just want to make it crystal clear. And I think this is a statement that makes it crystal clear. Um, so that statement is, this is on page XIX. And that is going to be the last time I talk about a page number in the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is on page XIX. Um, they say, games are, quote, a school for labor an instrument of rulership and a laboratory for the fantasies of advanced techno-capitalism. Okay? End quote. So, and the way I read this, and Michael, you can tell me if you read this differently, but there is an argumentative shift here that is different from basically every other book that we have read in, or not all of them, but a large number of the books that we have read so far in the show, which is to say that this book argues that games are productive of a world and a way of being in the world and of a political situation in the world they produce it rather than being reflective of human values human society or an already existing world like games make the conditions under which we experience them not the other way around do you think that's do you think that's fair yes no, I think that I think that is fair. Um, I also quoted this entire paragraph in my notes because I was like, "Oh, this is big." <laughs> <laughs> it it is, and and yeah, I guess why I had that caveat after I said that no other books is I do think that Shira Chess uh, gets pretty close to this claim. I think that Gina Bloom makes is making this claim um, mm-hmm. in a in a different kind of way, but she's you know she is saying that. Uh, Early modern theater is productive of a particular kind of uh, class system and mode of viewing subject. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is kind of buried, you know, in the middle of this introduction. And I think it's very important just to say up front that this does, that games do work, and the work that they are doing turns you into a particular type of person. And this is a different argument, I think, than some basic media effects argument that's like, does, do video games make you more violent or not? Um, right you know that that's insufficient but um i think this is something that this kind of claim intervenes at the level of what if if we begin put loot putting loot boxes in every video game no agnostic of genre agnostic of uh platform what does that do to us as consumers does that make us more willing to consume does that make us more wary does that make us more uh willing to call bullshit on uh, weird, you know, getting squeezed for a dollar here and there. Um, what does it do, you know? Um, and so I think it's a more complicated question, but fundamentally, this is the question of this entire book. No, I would say, um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the, the Bloom comparison is apposite, right? Because um, what struck me reading this part this time is that this is, uh, in a sense, right, this is, this is the argument that gets made about the early modern theater, um, not just like in the criticism that we're writing today, but like this is the argument that the early modern theater makes for itself, um, which I won't get into too much, right? But like, essentially, there's this huge debate on whether or not the theater it's 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 the video games debate, right? Does the theater make you like a morally worse person? Is something that everyone in 17th century England is extremely concerned about, um, and uh, the sort of 
uh, I mean, basically, the, both the advocates of the theater and its critics um, make this assumption, right, that the theater, in some sense, like, remakes the world or, like, remakes the subject um, in ways that are uh, apposite to this or that type of behavior. Um, and that's one of the things that I think Bloom is kind of picking up on in, in her writing. Um, and I, it, if I had... When I read this, right, I would not have been as deep in sort of the context of the early modern theater to clock this, um, but uh, now, now I am, and I was like, oh, okay, yep, this is interesting, especially like the idea of the instrument of rulership, right, the the entire sort of apparatus of the defensive art that grows up around the theater, um, comes out of all of these concerns about, uh, especially like how do we train our rulers, right, our kings. Uh, to be better kings, right? Which poets should they be reading? Which plays should they be seeing? That sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm kind of doing a little bit of um, kind of a side project that I'm working on um, academic-wise. I think I've talked about this in the show a little bit, but, but a side project is looking at um, educational labor games. So, you know, kind of famously last year, maybe the year before, KFC released a VR game that teaches you how to fry chicken and do stuff like that. <laughs> um, right? Which is like, th here's how you learn to fry chicken in a gamified environment so you don't burn your hands off. Yeah, um, great. Which is very important to, <laughs> to, to what you're doing, right? But I think about that too, right? That that is both a training tool, right? So it's a school for labor, uh, it's an instrument of rulership. It literally is telling you the rules and regulations and will punish you in a game-like way and in a real way. I mean, if you don't pass the game, you don't get the job, right? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the version of watching the VHS tape your first day of work um, mm -hmm. that, that you used to have to do. Um, but it's all of these things. And it's the idea that this is somehow a more efficient or better or more productive use of everyone's time, right? It's this fantasy that... Finally, finally, we finally. have technologically progressed to the point where you can, like, spin the colonel's head to, to turn <laughs> the fryer on or whatever, right? Um, which which is important. And working at KFC is, like, a, a real-ass job. It's, right. like, a job that people have that they need to be trained for and things like that. And it's the perfect kind of job. It's the kind of job without the, the cultural valorization around it where it can be the kind of canary in the coal mine for other types of jobs. Um, mm -hmm. People look at that, and it got reported as kind of a weird joke and a silly thing. Um, and, you know, the way that I think of it, and, and to be clear, it is kind of silly and strange, right? It, it's right. a bizarre way of going about anything. And yet, this is the exact kind of thing that we see in higher education. This, the same mechanism is now being applied to us. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same kind of mechan or mechanism you're going to see across all sectors. Um, right. It just happened to hit manual labor first and the service industry first because right. they are more vulnerable and they don't have the ability to fight back um, structurally. Right. Well, I mean, if, if, if the past three years have taught us anything, it should be that, like, no matter how increasingly silly and stupid things seem, <laughs> like, they are actually, like, extremely important and terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And it is, in fact, the mechanism of it seeming stupid, which is the, the problem. Yeah. Right. Uh, or, uh, or silly. Um in being silly something gets under underneath the radar right. um, so to speak um, and it seems like from my re reading of Twitter people have not caught on to that yet <laughs> <laughs> but um, but anyway so, so this introduction kind of starts with um, two games that used to be talked about a lot 
and now we're not talked about hardly at all. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting to me. So, so Second Life and America's Army. Um, yeah. And uh, so Second Life was a, or is, it, it still is, exists, it's still I guess. Going, yeah. Yeah, like a massively multiplayer online world in which you could have a little avatar and you could have many different types of instances. I think they were called islands in which uh, corporations or individuals could host basically uh, independent servers um, that could do their own stuff. So uh, I could create Game Study Study Buddy Island um and you know you and i could walk around and we could do all kinds of interesting stuff there um and then we could go into a larger instance of the world in which people were making things in public and we could all talk and chat and do poetry readings or whatever we wanted to do Mm -hmm. um and america's army was a military sim that was funded by the department of defense um to teach you how to be a um better more accurate soldier um and the two authors here read this as kind of two different mechanisms or two different ways of thinking about games underneath contemporary conditions of empire. Uh, America's army is militainment and uh, second life is ludo capitalism. Yes. Um, and these all combine together into one thing uh, or one big massive thing, which we'll eventually see is games of empire. Yes. Yeah. And basically, yeah, it's like another way of thinking about this is the the these two games represent, uh, broadly speaking, right, the, the two different subject positions um, that people are are sort of assumed to have, which is like, uh, how can't uh, the worker consumer in Second Life, and then the soldier citizen in America's Army. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they are uh, modes of interacting with the world around you. Um, right. We've said the word subjectivity quite a bit across um, all of our episodes, and we talked a little bit about what I think is the, the most common um, way of talking about the subject, with the, which is Althusser's Serre's um, idea of interpolation, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, a police officer walks past you in the street, and you get halfway down the block, and then from behind you, you hear uh, the police officer say, you stop and then you turn around and the police officer was not talking to you but it doesn't matter in that moment you have been turned into a subject a person with a particular relation to the state with a particular relationship to power um and in that moment you are aware of your relationship in the big network that surrounds you of power Um, and so these are ways of talking about different kinds of subjects in in other words these are different types of policemen yelling at you (laughs) (laughs) sometimes the policeman is saying hey come work and consume and sometimes he is saying hey come be a soldier citizen yeah um i think that's it so that's the end of the episode (laughs) yep that's it that's games of empire folks. that's games of empire we don't get more complicated uh no it does actually get much more complicated but at its core i think that's that's kind of it right um Mm -hmm. what we're going to see through the rest of this are ways through which subjectivities get built um ways that um worker consumers and soldier citizens are produced and how they are enticed back into a system that continues to produce them Mm -hmm. um so it's not the kind of thing where you could uh turn your back on you, you know the the Capitalism is such in this book and in in many contemporary analyses of capitalism that you can't simply turn your back on it and not participate or or claim you're not participating and then somehow get off scot-free. Right. You you are imbricated within capitalism kind of no matter what you do. 
and so this is about the different flavors of of that inner inner reaction or, yeah. or interrelation that happen across games. Right. Um, there's actually something that's really interesting that happens later in this introduction where they make a, a kind of intermediate comparison. Um, and they say that, uh, you know, video games are kind of the preeminent medium of, of empire. So when we say empire here, by the way, we should just note, um, and we'll unpack this, we are saying empire and we are saying it with a capital E because this doesn't just mean like any old empire or like even a specific empire. It is a theoretical concept that's getting deployed. Um, but they compare... Uh, video games to like the 18th century novel um, which if you're not from English studies in any way um, you would not know this maybe but like uh, there is a huge field of, of literary criticism of literary scholarship that is dedicated to reading um, early novels as they're invented in the 17th and 18th century um, sort of the form comes into its own and sort of showing how uh, the the form is indebted to um, all sorts of cultural shifts that have to do with like, you know, England's expanding imperial presence. Um, and then uh, they say they also compare it to like cinema and television in the 20th century, right? Like uh, these uh, these media are in some sense paradigmatic of their respective time periods because they are indebted to uh, not just cultural even, but like technological shifts in in the broader society, right? The, the means of producing these things um, become available in ways that they weren't before, and they take on particular forms and they events certain uh, logics at work in um, kind of the, the economy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, let's let's go ahead and dig down into uh, into Empire, capital E Empire. Um, so we can get at what that difference is. I, I, I'm mm -hmm. glad that you brought that up. And, and just to, to note here that um, kind of definitionally when they say games or when they say virtual games, which is the, their preferred term, uh, they note that these are, quote, gaming practices and game machines or combinations of the two of those things, right? So um, when they are talking about virtual games, they are almost always you know they're not talking about people who only go and play or and, and write things for the wikipedia or the wiki for kingdom hearts right <laughs> um they are not talking about people who only build models in city skylines and never play the game although those people are interesting and obviously those people are connected into this system but when they're talking about virtual games they're talking about these moments of intersection of machinery and people and the economic system that modulates both of those things. Um, so I just want to get that, like, their kind of definitional move uh, in here. Um, do, do you want to take a stab at what Empire is, Michael? <laughs> <clears throat> well, okay, so um, just to establish, like, some groundwork, Empire is uh, a concept that they're pulling from um, uh, Hart and Negri, uh, which is to say, um, is it, it's... Uh, Antonio Negri and Michael Hart, that's right? Yep. Yeah, yep. okay. Um, <clears throat> who have a... It, the book is just called Empire, isn't it? They wrote a book yep. called Empire. Okay. Uh, and this is sort of a uh, Italian post-Marxist uh, kind of uh, critique, and we'll get a good sense of, of what it entails as we go through this book, um, because they are pulling from them basically at every available opportunity. But one way of thinking about this is that Hart and Negri kind of... Uh, synthesize in a way um Marx and Foucault um they they become very interested in uh kind of 
the the biopolitics of, of capitalism um, and kind of what does it mean uh, when uh, capitalism as as a uh, as a logic kind of gets disseminated so broadly that there is um, essentially like it is it is almost determinant of, of everything anyone is doing right there is no outside quote unquote um, so how uh, the authors here uh, define empire and I'm going to quote this uh, by empire we mean the global capitalist ascendancy of the early 21st century a system administered and policed by a consortium of competitively collaborative neoliberal states among whom the United States still clings by virtue of its military might to an increasingly dubious preeminence <laughs> um, right so the idea here is that uh, despite uh, <clears throat> the United States getting name dropped here, and even despite kind of the shade being thrown at it, uh, empire here is not just, uh, distillable to, like, the United States version of capitalism, or whatever our neo, neo-imperialist projects are, um, it is, uh, sort of the world order, right, the, the, um, uh, what is a good way of putting this, the kind of, uh, Francis Fuki, the post-Francis Fukuyama idea that, like, uh, history has ended, capitalism has has won, quote-unquote. Um, and so now it's either, like, we're going to, we need to figure out, like, the best form of capitalism to have uh, and just continually, like, burrow down into this problem rather than search for alternatives, right? There is, there is no kind of um, alternative uh, uh, kind of epistemology or something like that to, to launch against it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're going to talk quite a bit over the course of this about the moments where video games and game studies run into actual politics, quote unquote, actual politics, um, because that's kind of the argument of this book, right? That those are one and the same um, and trying to draw a strong dividing line when you really get get down into it is very hard um, (laughs) because those projects are built up in one another. But what, what, you know, the way that I think of it. when they say a consortium of competitively collaborative neoliberal states um, with the United States kind of at the top is something like when the United States decided to invade Iraq, we had uh, the Coalition of the Willing, which was a number of different um, states who decided to send either economic support or military support or civilian support uh, with the United States into Iraq. Um, And we had several countries that protested that. But at the end of the day, this did not stop global trade. There was not a global boycott of the United States of working, you know, basically unilaterally against another sovereign nation. Um, Everyone continued to to go about their business. Um, And while there might have been ideological disagreements about the Iraq war, there were not economic or political disagreements about the Iraq war, meaning it did not create a crisis in capitalism at all. One state... deciding to uniformly police the world did not have big knock-on effects across the planet uh, when it comes to the neoliberal uh, nations that support it and surround it right so that's that's a moment of this weird thing of where there can be disagreement with under under global capital and there can be um, ideological uh, unhappiness but everyone is dependent on empire and because of that you, you can't rock the boat too much. Another another definition that they give, kind of a, a side definition that I particularly like, is they say empire is governance by global capital, capitalism. Like, oh, uh, yeah. 
yeah, the decisions that get made are fundamentally decisions that support global capitalism rather than supporting individual nations or, uh, you know, God forbid, people. <laughs> right, right, right. It's 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 the like when when Amazon pulls out of uh, the New York City uh, headquarters, right? Mm-hmm. It's the people who are like, well, like, what about the property values? What yes. about the real estate agents? <laughs> Yeah, what about New York as an ascendant global city that is comparable, that remains comparable to, um, uh, uh, you know, London, maybe, right. or Hong Kong, um, those other major economic cities? If it, if Amazon's not New York, then how does New York stay competitive in the global right. marketplace? And maybe the people that, that live in New York might maybe should have a say one way or the other in that, and they did. <laughs> um, good on them. But so so you've already used some of the terms that um, that I was noting that we'll get to later if people are confused. One of which is biopolitics, um, mm-hmm. which comes out of Foucault that we'll talk about um, here in this definition or around here. They talk about immaterial labor, which we'll get to very shortly. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about uh, some other stuff too. They talk about cognitive capitalism briefly, and then they talk about how you make a subject, which is a little bit different. Um, then the, the all through Sarah story that I told before, and I'll get it what that, that difference is. Um, do you know anything about Hart and Negri just in, in, in any way? Um, and not a whole lot. And I actually probably, I've been meaning to like, look into this more, um, because it's always confused me, like why, why and how they write together, especially because, uh, Negri was like in prison. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. so, uh, yeah, like, uh, yeah, that, I don't know. That's that's as much as I know, basically. So I, I actually don't quite, I, I have a uh, kind of an informal cultural history that I, I don't want to reproduce on a podcast without any kind of verification. I've been told how they came together to write. Um, uh, but I, I'll say that they, they, one, had a shared intellectual trajectory. Michael Hart, I believe, was a PhD student in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and his first book is on Deleuze and particularly Deleuze and Spinoza. Mm-hmm. Negri is a huge Spinozist. Um, yes. you know, you know, a lot of his political work is based on the work of Spinoza and reading through Kunatus and, and things like that. If, if, uh, people who are listening have questions about this, feel free to send an email in or get on the discord and we can talk about uh, Spinoza all day long. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of the, the, the thing, you know. Tony Negri is, I don't know, maybe 30 years older than Michael Hart, 20 years yeah. older at least. I'm yeah, constantly, so, I'm not to be morbid, right? But I'm constantly surprised that he's not dead. Yeah. he. <laughs> I, so I think, so for the political movement he was involved in, in the 1970s, he was one of the younger people. So right. uh, I think a lot of his contemporaries are dead. Um, but yeah, <laughs> just to give like a little story, because it is an interesting and strange story, because yeah, a lot of the writing they did together and a lot of writing that Negri has published comes from when Negri was imprisoned, and you have to wonder, well, what's the story there? Um, so in 1978, this is the 70s, y'all. The 70s were wild. <laughs> <laughs> just across the globe. Um, so in 1978, the Red Brigade, which was like a leftist military faction in Italy, kidnapped the former prime minister and killed him okay so tony negri antonio negri was involved in leftist politics and so they traced back the phone call um of the red brigade person who said hey we're going to kill the former prime minister 
And someone said that it was Antonio Negri's voice. And so they <laughs> charged him. Here is the, the weirdest thing about it. So they charge him, okay? They mm-hmm. charge him with, like, conspiracy. The trial goes on for a long time. It is difficult. Um, before he goes to prison, before he's sent to prison, he calls, and I'm pulling this story from Francois uh, Doss's book on Deleuze and Guattari. That book is a little bit wiggly in its facts, so okay. I don't know one way or the other if this is true or not. It's a great story, okay? So Antonio Negri calls Guattari of Deleuze and Guattari, Felix Guattari, who lives mm-hmm. in France, and he says, look, man, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of Italy. <laughs> Guattari goes and rents a boat, takes a boat to Italy, and uh, picks Tony Negri up at the docks. Oh, my god. And gosh. they go back to France. And he lives there in exile for years. Okay. Yeah, so Tony Negri escapes the Italian state, of which everyone thinks that he had nothing to do with the, the Red Army uh, or the Red Brigade. I don't know one way or the other. But anyway, so so they are trying to, you know, there's no extradition from France. And so they are trying to get him to come back for years and years. And eventually from France, he pleads and negotiates his jail sentence down from 30 years to 13 years. And then he comes back to Italy and then serves his sentence and then writes a bunch of books while he's there. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's things like his prison notebooks that are kind of similar to Gramsci's prison notebooks and things like that. Um, but, yeah, so that's kind of the story. So, so. Uh, Antonio Negri is kind of in the center, you know, of um, all the things he's critical of. You know, mm-hmm. he, he he was involved and uh, has not kind of on the ground flavor to him. Uh, and I don't know much about Michael Hart. So yeah, no, I uh, he's at Duke. He, I know that. Oh, he was at Duke. I think he said he was a Duke. Like <laughs> Duke <laughs> Michael like, that's, Hart. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that's those guys. <laughs> yeah, that's those people. So we can. I, so I think that you know that's the kind of whole introduction. It only took us thirty eight minutes to, yeah. to talk about the whole introduction, but um, basically, yeah. That that the big claim being made here is that global capitalism it functions in a particular and strange way in our period in the twenty first century. Games are a medium of the 21st century, and so this book is looking at the intersection of those two things and how they work together. Mm-hmm. Oh, my cat has uh, finished his breakfast, so he's going to start screaming outside my door. It's it's Bruno. Yeah, it's he's Bruno. yelling. <laughs> he's yelling. He's like, I had my breakfast. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> um, so the first chapter is on immaterial labor. Um, yes. Which is, you were talking about earlier about uh, some tweeting that we did <laughs> with, a, with a friend of the show, um, Daniel Joseph, who doesn't mm-hmm. particularly care for immaterial labor. Um, yes. But I have a little bit of a higher respect for immaterial labor, or as they define it, quote, the less tangible symbolic or social dimensions of commodities. Yes. I mean, I can understand why you would... Uh have an issue with 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 the like the the phrase immaterial labor right i can understand um how that might be misinterpreted or misapplied and why you would be kind of kind of hedgy about that um but i also think that what they are talking about here what they are calling immaterial labor is in fact uh good stuff as they say (laughs) yeah i agree um so immaterial immaterial labor comes out of uh an italian scholar who was part of 
the autonomous movement, um, autonomia, uh, I think is uh, the, the Italian for it that uh, Antonio Negri was a part of in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, this includes people like uh, Tiziana Terranova and Paolo Virno and, and Lazzarato, as I just said. Um, Lazzarato uh, creates the term immaterial labor, I believe, in the 90s. Um, and uh, the idea behind it is that labor in the post-war period, especially post-1970s, post-finance capital, basically, or, mm-hmm. or, or exclusively finance capital, almost, um, labor shifts from merely factory work or something like that into the manipulation and arrangement of signs and symbols and uh, mental content. Um, and so it's thinking labor um, right. and specialist thinking labor, not just... Um, you know, a flattened kind of all labor at one time. Um, if you're interested in reading a lot about this, you can read uh, his The Making of Indebted Man. Uh, I think that's a really good book that, that kind of does some of this work. Um, it's, it's short, too, which is which is helpful. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so what, what they're trying to look at here is how empire supports itself through modes of encouraging or accelerating or developing immaterial labor. What, what, what do you think about this, Michael? Um, I think, yeah, no, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense, right? I think, um, uh, the idea that, uh, sort of the, the, the smooth circulation of like knowledge information, this is, I'm quoting from them, uh, or actually, uh, I believe they're quoting Hart and Negri here, uh, knowledge, information, communication, um, a relationship or an emotional response, uh, is kind of what is at the heart of this idea of material or immaterial labor. Um, and essentially, right, one of the other ways of thinking about this is that they are trying to describe uh, the types of jobs that become more and more uh, both important and sort of basically like more available uh, in the transition to a like service economy. Um, because uh, immaterial labor here, right, doesn't just mean like, uh, I mean, some of the work that I do at a publisher is very much immaterial labor. A lot of the work that I do is about uh, sort of thinking about various book timelines and figuring out when people are turning things in, what is the best way to send the email telling someone that I'm going to have to move their due date up or something like that. but that's also kind of like a, a service industry kind of thing, right? How to uh, gracefully interact with other people is is one of the primary features of your job, that sort of thing. Yeah, and and this is also immaterial labor. Labor really intersects with early conversations about emotional labor too, um, mm-hmm. and that yes. even comes up a little bit in this book. But um, yeah, the idea that the manipulation of affects and of relationships is just as important as whatever actual thing you're typing into a system. I mean, this is a huge part of my job day to day too. And if you are the manager of that Kentucky fried chicken that we were talking about earlier, this is a huge (laughs) part of your job now too, um, in the way that it probably wasn't 30 years ago, which is to say that uh, you're not only doing the emotional labor that we think of in the service industry, but you are thinking through supply timelines and you were thinking through quotas uh for the amount of product that you have and profit and things like that things that were traditionally executive jobs have now been proletarianized Um, right uh, the kind of symbolic and and broad structural thinking that used to be the executive class is now in everyone 
right? We're, right. we're all having to think those broad questions. And that means that we have all become a lot more competent with doing things that are about the manipulations of signs and symbols and um, mental content. Um, you know, if, if, even if you dig ditches, you are not just digging ditches in 2019. Right. You are, you are an independent entrepreneur who is negotiating contracts with the city and other private and then private individuals in order to determine your place in the local local market of ditch digging. And that's different. That is different um, qualitatively uh, than it was 30 years ago. Right. So uh, just a little bit of history, or they do a little bit of history here, which I find compelling. Um and some history I don't find compelling. So they point out that early video games are kind of the product of early or not, earlier forms of immaterial labor. So they're talking about uh, Higginbotham, uh, who created Tennis for Two as, as a kind of like fun experiment for an open house day at the mm -hmm. lab he was working at. They talk about Steve Russell, who created Space War at MIT. And they talk about Ralph Baer, um, all of whom are people doing... Uh, mental labor, right? Ralph Baer mm -hmm. tells this really interesting story about the creation of the Odyssey, where basically he was just like, "Hey, I think we could, I think we could probably like project moving stuff onto a screen using some using just the functions of a TV and how a TV works." And his bosses were like, "All right, well, here's an office, and here's one dude, hop to it." <laughs> and they worked on it. They made, that's how they made the prototype prototype for the Odyssey, the brown box that eventually became the Odyssey. Um, and so. They're pointing out that they are doing this kind of um, fun time, free time labor, mm -hmm. um, but that is all supported by the military industrial complex. Higginbotham's working at a lab. Um, I can't pull the name uh, out of my head at this very moment, but he's working uh, at a lab uh, that is funded by the federal government. It's a defense department contractor. Uh, MIT, of course, is one of the technical universities that is hugely funded by the military-industrial complex, and Ralph Baer is working at Magnavox. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just a, this big power player in post-war technology. So all of these modes of doing labor and modes of or reasons for creating things are supported implicitly and explicitly by massive military-industrial complex corporations uh, and funding mechanisms. Right, and this is a really good illustration of like one of the, one of the key points about empire. There being like you know quote unquote no outside, right? Because these these folks are um, like they're going to become increasingly countercultural, right? As kind of like uh, the fifties and sixties techno culture evolves um, into like once the sort of like hacker figure emerges. Mm -hmm. uh, but like uh, you know these are as as sort of like weird and against the grain as these applications are of these technologies um they are still applications that are being funded and in some sense uh if not encouraged then not discouraged by the kind of powerful apparatus because yeah. uh there can be a kind of lateral development where um something gets put together in in the programmer's free time that ends up having extremely important implications for the actual job yeah, so they talk about uh, Stuart Brand's uh, article for very famous article for Rolling Stone about Space War um, and about how Space War was developed during what what Brand called Moonlight Time, which is free time on the on the computer where it's not being used to run um, you know other things that it's actually meant to be used for. I think it, I think Space War was developed on a PDP ten, 
Um, but it's been a minute since I've taught game history. Uh, that's a that's a very specific thing to remember. Um, and so, yeah, so they move through that. They move through this kind of, like, local figures, right, that are funded mm-hmm. by uh, the military-industrial complex into a kind of broader discussion of early games. And they make a move that I don't particularly care for when they're talking about the 1983 video game crash. Um so they say, you know, look, what happens is that Atari is dominating the the industry. Um, and through that domination, a lot of different uh, competitors emerge that are creating software for Atari. And the glut of the market is what causes the military or the military, the video game industry to fall apart. OK, that's, that's the, the standard story. So basically, Activision and the like are responsible for third party software, which then tanks video games. Right. Um, I don't think that's the case. Um, even even doing kind of a cursory look at what's happening there, um, it's pretty clear to me that that it's kind of broader institutions of capitalism that are partially at fault. So anyone who's a hardware manufacturer in the early 1980s is trying to make a video games machine. Everybody. Um, so there's a lot of competition on the hardware front, not just software. And importantly, Atari gets bought by Warner. Um, before the video game crash. So they are part of the military-industrial complex um, in a big way. So there's this big move across many different uh, technology industries to create vertical integration and then to pump huge amounts of money into games. Um, and so to me, it seems that it is a not a failure of finance capital necessarily but it is a failure of big moves in capitalism it's not about software and consumers it is about how this industry is supposed to look and it tips over because there's so much money being funneled into it from the top down rather than the bottom up or rather than a lack from the bottom up right that's that's my uh, my intervention here right well it's like it's like the implosion of speculation Mm mm-hmm a hundred percent like a million percent um Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I agree, right? I, I didn't catch that, but that's probably because I am not, like, uh, <laughs> as trained to read for these subtle shifts in video game history. But, like, nope, I totally agree. Like, I didn't even notice that they had kind of thrown that onto the... Uh, <laughs> onto the wrong what I, I what I agree is kind of the the wrong sort of process at work there. Um, so, yeah, that happens. And then Japan comes in. Then Japan comes in. Um, what do you think of this? I didn't know what to make um, of this part of the book. Okay, so this is really interesting. Um, they, they when they talk about sort of basically, you know, so after after the the U.S. video game crash, um, Japan kind of starts the process of resuscitation, specifically in 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 the person of Nintendo. Um, and they cite Anne Allison here, who is just like, by the way, they're citing her book uh, Millennial Monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, just like fun side note this is the book that made me a marxist oh wow (laughs) this this particular book about japanese uh pop culture um i read it in a japanese pop culture class my freshman year of college and it was extremely formative for me so it's weird like what what i feel like uh games of empire is to you know friend of the podcast austin walker because he Mm -hmm. said that this is the book this is the book that made him a game studies person um and allison was for me i was like oh here's how you make marxism work as a theoretical frame so that's a good book i i I encourage you to read that book if if that's a thing you're interested in although it's probably super dated by this point anyway um 
they're working off of Anne Allison and sort of a lot of claims that she makes about um, the way that the Japanese economy gets restructured uh, after um, the Second World War. Um, and how that, like, the, the way that Japanese capitalism has a, a particular, like, because it is Japanese capitalism, right, has a particular uh, way of leveraging relationships to commodities um, that she argues come out of kind of the, the Shintoist background of the country. Um, and so they... Uh, that is to say, um, yes, Deputer and Witherford uh, end up using Allison to say that, uh, and this is, a, this is a very strange way of putting it, um, that Japan manages to bring back video games because of manga. Um, mm -hmm. That is because of the Japanese history of, of sequential art, right, uh, manga, like, you know, Japanese comics. Um, they argue that there is a uh, kind of... I'm trying to put this like an ability to uh use kind of like character and graphics in a way that like atari systems were maybe not as interested in right like characters in nintendo games are like not 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 like real characters but like they are recognizable they become recognizable in ways that um things from atari aren't right so you get mario mm -hmm. um uh and they pull up the fact that um Miyamoto, right, uh, Mario's or originally Jumpman's creator, uh, was a sort of aspiring manga artist who uh, just sort of did this weird turn into designing uh, video games. Um, I do not know about this particular move. I, I feel like maybe more needs to be done to unpack, uh, like, the, the claim that manga was, was a particularly special ingredient in what allowed uh like nintendo to bring back video games yeah um i guess i'll leave it at that <laughs> yeah my i mean this this is all this is always the second part of my um kind of intervention in the history of games um i i i only see it as moves of broad investment capital um uh, meaning that i don't think that it, it is a common argument to say Video game crash in 1983 happens because of market conditions and the creation of a big glut of games that no one wants to play, which drives down prices, which tanks the industry. The The follow-up to that, to that is that a few years later, a couple years later, Nintendo fixes it by um, making better games that are more recognizable and good. Right, they introduce quality control. Yes, which... Um, a anyone should read um, uh, ten, the the article on uh, Ten NES by wrote game uh, uh, wrote developers dilemma Casey O'Donnell. You should read the essay by Casey O'Donnell about uh, the Ten NES chip, which is the the quality control mechanism, the the IP protection mechanism. So a number one, that's important. B Nintendo just bought their way into the marketplace. Uh, Nintendo spent millions and millions of dollars trying to introduce themselves into New York and get a foothold. Um, it's not that Mario or Jumpman or whatever uh, was uh, just immediately eye-grabbing. It's that they spent millions of dollars to put it in front of people's eyeballs. Um, 
you know, it's like saying that we watch Transformers because deep in our hearts, we've been yearning for transforming robots our whole lives. Uh, (laughs) That's not the case. We go and watch Transformers or we go and watch the Marvel movies because they spend millions and millions of dollars ensuring that we want to watch those things. And that's not to say that we don't enjoy them. I love Transformers. But if Transformers released as an indie film and it received no, you know, there was one trailer that showed in front of Roma at your local theater, <laughs> you're probably not going to make a billion plus dollars on that film. Um, right? There, there, there's some amount of investment and then return on investment that happens with marketing. That, right. to me, is part of the history of Nintendo, and it is odd to me to see that kind of erased here. Right, yeah, no, I... Okay, I'm, I'm, that's good, right? That sort of resolves, uh, not really resolves, but it addresses one of my sort of problems where I had the same thought as you, where it was just like, I'm not sure if people were just like, like 1986, like an American sees a Mario and they're like, holy crap, that guy's a character. Yeah, I mean, that's like, the story, I wanna, right? I want to play games again. Yes, that if if you if you buy this narrative then that's the case and that seems right. to me to be such a consumer based right it, it it that requires consumers to be the ultimate arbiters of good and bad right. and like we said at the top right games are you are produced in the same moment that you are looking at something like you are brought into the fold um, by looking at a game. And so it, to see this kind of uni, unilateral reactive force being the ultimate arbiter of economics, I just don't I don't see that being the case at all. Yeah. Um, but that also explains part of the, the use of immaterial labor here. And I know we spent a long time on this chapter, but I think it's important because I think a lot of this is shared throughout the rest of the book that the, you know, the importance of immaterial labor is that you are producing while you're being produced. Mm-hmm. Every time I'm asked to work on an Excel sheet, I am learning a little bit more about Excel, but ultimately I am producing more for uh, more value for whatever entity I work for. But I'm becoming more and more trained on that day by day, which is kind of similar to a machine or something like that, but also kind of not because the skills that I learn on that Excel spreadsheet also basically transfer to every other Microsoft suite product that will ever be made. Right. Um, so it's a little bit, it's a bigger system um now right and they kind of so they they kind of end this chapter on this uh question of masculinization and uh and gender what what do you think about that it's odd um it's another odd one because it it just kind of comes at the end of this chapter as a way to segue into the next one yeah um and on the on the one hand i see it right um because what one of the things they talk about is because these gendered divides in uh games are already like games or games culture are kind of already emerging right we're seeing the activation of kind of these latent tendencies regarding like gender and technology and so on and so forth um then uh you suddenly start getting players um who will hack games right or will modify them in order to introduce like female avatars in games where none existed and then the game company's kind of response is like oh this is a thing we can do to like add additional value to our product right we can put these in from the get-go um and then suddenly we have another selling point um and that also leads them into idea that the authors this leads them into ideas of like uh, what they call flavor, um, machinima, um, fan creations, uh, the way that fans or like a fan community will often generate something of value uh, surrounding a game that will 
uh, well, eventually, right, the, the, the developer, the company, the publisher, whatever, is going to try to fold that back into the, the revenue apparatus of, of the game. So I see why that happens, right? Because then we move, the next chapter is going to be a lot about sort of like actual development practices. Um, but coming at the end right here, it, it, it feels a little odd. Yeah, it feels like a like a really good conference paper that got checked in here at the end. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, yeah. Let's just go ahead and talk about this. The next chapter. Then um, it's called Cognitive Capitalism, mm-hmm. um, and it starts with the EA Spouse, which is kind of back in the gaming news over the last year. Um, yeah, I was gonna. So one of the things I said on Twitter is that one of the fascinating things about this book is that it is ten years old, and it is constantly bouncing between. Uh, feeling like it is 10 years old. Very, very much so. <laughs> um, and then suddenly feeling like it is from 10 years in our future. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's talking about what's happening right now, but also like what's just going to be happening for the next decade. And this is the chapter, I think, where I feel that the most strongly because we're talking about EA Spouse and Crunch and so on. So yeah, Cameron, what's EA Spouse? Uh, so EA Spouse was a, uh, a blog post that was written um, by the partner of someone who was working at EA. And it was just about crunch. It was about the labor conditions that were expected of rock or uh, expected of this developer and how it was basically ruining their life. Um, and it was one of the very few documents at the time, not, although not the only document, it's just become historically very important. Um, but it was one of the few documents to speak very frankly, um, and to get kind of larger news coverage for the kinds of conditions that game developers worked under. So long hours, uh, sleeping under your desk, working seven hours a week or seven days a week or six days a week, um, having huge benefits, but not being able to use those benefits, right? So kind of the the tech industry way of talking about that now, this is a little bit more in the common parlance now, right? But the mm-hmm. idea t- 10 or 15 years ago was like, you come work in our new startup and we've got a ping pong table. And you can just use that ping pong table if you want. You know, you can do that. You, you want soda? You can have as many sodas as you want. And now, 10 or 15 years on, it's much more in the common parlance to say, yeah, there's a ping pong table, but no one is ever playing it because they are crunching. Or, yeah, there's free soda, and everyone is constantly hammering them down <laughs> to right. fill, fill their body with caffeine and sugar so they can keep from crashing out in the middle yeah. of the day. Um, so these are modes of enticing you into being a good laborer, but really they just become ways of hooking you into a system to extract more labor from you. Um, exactly. They are not benefits. They are uh, problems. Yeah. So EA Spouse just talked about that. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, can we talk about, uh, did, did we know, I didn't know this, uh, we know who EA Spouse is. Yeah. Yeah, we did know okay. that. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. I just she's she's not mentioned by name in the book, so I didn't know if she like remained anonymous in perpetuity. Um, but yeah, I just want to drop her name just so if people want to like look her up and find out more about her. Her name is Erin Hoffman. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. She shows up in the book really briefly uh, when they're talking about the settlement that was eventually reached after the reached after the lawsuit that came out of EA Spouse, um, which is something that I found was interesting. Uh, so on page sixty one, they talk about the millions of dollars that game development companies and publishers have paid out to individual developers who have found within their contracts or whatever, the ability to actually sue them for wrongful labor practices. Right. Um, and my impression now out of that is that 
these companies have figured out how to write contracts in such a way as to never be liable for that again. So this was kind of a, uh, a unique moment where the legal system could actually be wielded against companies that are abusing their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I don't think that's the case anymore. I have not heard of any of these cases in a very long time. So yes, uh, that is that is EA Spouse, um, yeah. and what what Hoffman sort of gestures at is one of the core problems that um, this chapter is concerned with, which is this idea of cognitive capitalism, uh, which is similar to but distinct from what we from immaterial labor that we talked about in the last chapter, because cognitive capitalism is more about sort of the the way of describing the system that makes use of immaterial labor. Uh, it is a kind of, uh, well, I'm just going to quote them on it. Um, it emphasizes the dependence of corporate enterprises, or, yeah, of corporate enterprises on the thinking, that is to say the cognition, of the workers. Um, so workers' minds kind of become, quote, the machine of production, generation of profit. Uh, they generate profit for owners who have purchased with a wage the thinking power. So whereas the, the sort of, like, traditional understanding of labor is... Um, I go into the factory, the boss is hiring my labor power, which is to say, like, my ability to, you know, push a button, uh, move things along an assembling line, whatever. Um, this is shifting toward uh, the ability of my brain to kind of run the various uh, processes that need to happen for me to figure out how to, like, I don't know, code particle physics into this game. Right, a hundred percent, and that th- that your ability to do that is both specialized yes. and generic. That you, you your ability is not to learn how to cut a or, or to operate a sheet metal cutting machine, and over the course of your career cutting sheet metal, you would learn a lot of different useful techniques and ways of working with that machine. You would become an expert on that machine, um, but fundamentally, you are a sheet metal cutting expert. Um, Whereas under cognitive capitalism, if you are a part of particle effects programmer, for example, um, or animator, um, you have a generalizable set of mental modes and operations or, and ways of doing things that are just as important as your actual ability to map particles onto a previously existing 3D model of a hand or whatever, a Bioshock right. hand. Uh, something like that. It it is your way of thinking that is being hired, not just your ability to mm-hmm. animate a hand or whatever. Um, and so that that's uh, important and useful because, um, you know, as EA Spouse points out, that can be massively mm-hmm. exploited. I mean, the boss basically gets to live in your head, right? Yes. Like that's the thing, yes. right? It's. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's grad school, <laughs> um, right? <laughs> oof, uh, oof. <laughs> calm down, calm down. <laughs> like, I go home, I'm still thinking about, uh, like, whatever theoretical problem I'm, I'm trying to crack apart, right? Um, yeah, or, right, or, or you're that teaching. I'm teaching. Or in, in these cases, yeah. right, like, um, I go home, I'm still thinking about, like, the, the three lines of code that I can't get to come out right, that there's still something wrong there. Or, um, you know, I don't even go home. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, I think that there there's a reasonable response to this, which is that the sheet metal cutting worker goes home and probably thinks about sheet mm-hmm. metal cutting. But if you look at 19th and 20th century uh, 
like anthropological and sociological work about workers, they had leisure time. Like the 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 eight hour working day was one in order to give people leisure time where they could like sit and drink coffee and do other things that were not cutting sheet metal and not thinking about cutting sheet metal. Um, that was part of the conversation. And so I'm wary, I'm very willing to say that obviously there's some sort of cognitive part, thinking part, sitting in your brain part of cutting sheet metal. There's obviously immaterial mm -hmm. labor in being like the floor boss for cutting sheet metal. But those people had the ability and, and, and organized under the, the, the aegis of maintaining their ability to not have to do or think about their job when they're not right. there. And so there is, I think, a, a, you know, even if we don't take it analytically and we take the people who were there at their word, there is a difference in types of labor that's happening here and a difference in the way that capitalism functions in these right. two time periods. Um, and sort of, you know, aligned with this, uh, they highlight a lot of practices, uh, specifically also this chapter is about EA, right, as kind of the um, the big daddy of, of uh games publishers and um sort of you know the villain right sort of the the most uh uh widely maligned maybe big publisher because they just are, are they have this reputation for buying up studios and turning everything into franchises and so on and so forth um and this is aligned with uh this reliance on kind of the the cognitive capitalism model where uh they are global like ea as a company right is is uh globally distributed uh nevertheless um they gravitate toward places that are going to have high cognitive uh capital labor supplies uh so places where there are lots of universities especially universities that have a lot of tech graduates and things like that um and also uh one of the the favored games industry bromides right uh people who like games people who will come work for them because games are what they love because of the passion that they have whereas the person who is working in um the factory cutting sheet metal like there's a chance right that they have like opinions on sheet metal right my dad works in a casket factory and he has opinions about caskets um at the same time like uh i don't think caskets are his life <laughs> Uh, he, he does not, yeah. like, uh, live for caskets in the way that a person working at um, a game developer is expected to sort of, like, passionately care about games. Yeah, well, that kind of, unless you have anything else to say about cognitive capitalism kind of in a broad aspect, um, it's interesting that, you know, the way that you, you put cha chapter two about kind of being the system of management for immaterial <laughs> labor. And now, so that's kind of a zoom out from chapter one. Chapter three is kind of another, it's back to zooming in. Yeah. <laughs> back down to the specific because it's about individual people not even a labor condition but what do people do so if, if you want to go ahead and move to that oh uh, yeah sure we can do so that. um the next chapter um is called machinic subjects the xbox and its rivals um and this chapter is fascinating to me just because it is talking about relatively recent history um like it's weird how how so it's talking about the development of the Xbox right in the in the early two thousands um, Microsoft's first Xbox, uh, and I lived through that of course right I was a part of I was a part mm -hmm. of this uh, sort of prehistory of the console wars that they talk about right so we the console wars is uh, so Nintendo 
brings back the game industry, however you want to think that that happens. Um, then we have Nintendo, Sega, right? Sega emerges as kind of a rival. We have Sonic. And then uh, Sony gets in on the game with the PlayStation. So we have this big three kind of setup. And uh, Sega folds. And Sony and Nintendo are kind of in a Cold War. And Microsoft in the early 2000s makes their bid to kind of enter the console game. Um, now, what uh, they say about consoles here, right? Game consoles, this is a quote, uh, game consoles generally function in a way related to, but different from television advertising. Um, that is to say, they are devices for the extraction of machinic surplus value from people, right? From individuals, which is another way of saying, like, uh, consoles are things that are produced by these games companies um, in order to uh, take your, like, they want your time and attention, right? In the same way that the, the advertising on television wants your time and attention, but amped up to 11 because the console, because of the way it is produced, um, requires you to come back to it to spend games on it or to spend money on games for it, um, that sort of thing. Um, that's sort of the, the corporate gamble of, of console production is you sell them, even though they're like incredibly expensive and getting more expensive, you sell them for less than they cost to make because you want to recoup all of that uh, additional cost in uh, additional game sales, uh, like now like, you know, season passes or like online uh, subscription service memberships, things like that. Um, and yeah. So that's sort of the beginning here with uh, the Xbox and in the machine subjectivities. Yeah, they they make a it, the console becomes a mechanism for for extracting right. value out of of um, consumers. You know, I think a lot kind of the the next move in that 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 uh, people might be super familiar with is uh because obviously like charging for xbox live that that's a payment you pay for every month even if you don't use it a single moment of that month you've paid for it and i think we understand how that can be um important and create or how that creates value but maybe not subjectivity mm -hmm. i think a good example of that is the patent document that went around for um for the McDonald's commercial, um, oh my God. where you have to acknowledge yes. McDonald's, <laughs> yes. that was McDonald's, right? Yes, it, it was. Okay, so so like the patent diagram is someone sitting in front of a, a television and like a Hulu commercial or whatever is playing, and it's thirty seconds long and you can't skip it. But if you stand up and wave your arms in the air and yell McDonald's, then you can skip <laughs> the commercial. That is creating a machine right. subject. They extract value from you. For the uh, for the advertisement itself, the advertising industry is making money on you doing that. It is causing a certain type of discipline. You become disciplined to when you see the first frame of that McDonald's ad to stand up and start screaming right. McDonald's. And McDonald's now lives right. in your head more than it does already. Um, right, McDonald's, 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 right? They take our memes and now they take <laughs> our ability to skip commercials, I guess. Um, yeah. And uh, the Xbox <laughs> ends up being one of their their key examples of, of how this works because, uh, and this is this is actually a very interesting part of this chapter, I think, um, by virtue of being sort of belated to the console wars, right? Because the console wars are sort of over, um, the 90s console wars, right? Uh, and we're just kind of down to Nintendo and Sony uh, having, I guess, a Cold War or something. Uh Xbox can come in 
and uh, basically capitalize on aspects of of the gaming community that have been built up by these previous uh, companies and consoles um, and sort of like parcel them off. And specifically what Xbox goes for um, is the uh, like quote unquote hardcore American gamer. Um, so they they make the argument right that by virtue of how it looks, by its design, by the size of its controllers, the Xbox is already telling you right who its audience is. It is the gamer, the guy who likes. Uh, it's always a guy, right? Like the big controllers because men have bigger hands or something like that. Um, and then the killer app for the Xbox console, of course, is is Halo, um, the the bro game par excellence of the of the knots. Uh, so there's this mm-hmm. entire way that, um, like Xbox, uh, like Xbox as a console is a kind of a result of Microsoft being able to look at the lay of the land of the video game industry and locate a sort of sub demographic among gamers and being like, okay, this is who we're going to market to because these are the people who really like games, but are not necessarily being served, uh, by, uh, Nintendo or Sony for whatever reason, right? Um, and then uh, <laughs> the weird flip side of this is because Microsoft has sort of focused on the hardcore demographic, uh, they suddenly open themselves up to uh, piracy and hacking in ways that uh, the other consoles haven't quite had to face. Um, and also because like the, the Xbox is built on... Um, like Windows machinery, right? People already know how to hack Windows machines. Uh, so you get people who are like going into their Xbox and installing Linux um, and things yeah. like that. So uh, that that's kind of the weird double edge is that by focusing in on this hardcore demographic uh, and creating a machine for them, um, that sort of not only uh, sort of invites them to, to participate because of that demographic, uh, sort of signaling right because it enforces that sense of the hardcore gamer or whatever uh you suddenly get really weird emergent hardcore gamer behaviors like hacking your own machine or homebrewing yeah and this is this all interacts i think uh i'm glad that we talked about kind of the use case first with the broad theoretical paradigm for this chapter and that kind of is latent in a lot of the rest of the book too which is deleuze and guattari Gilles deleuze and and felix guattari uh notably felix guattari of the boat from earlier in the episode um but their idea of the design machine um which is just to say that they have a different mode of thinking of a human being a human being for Deleuze and Guattari and in fact all things in the world are not simply objects with essences you know so my phone is not uh, a delimited object that is a phone it is a composite of a lot of different small interlocking machine parts and I don't mean machine parts like uh like a piece of of uh you know not a processor not a silicone part but machines in the sense of things that perform functions uh, together. So for them, um, a desiring machine is is a, a human being in the sense that what it does is it creates filial relationships with things outside of itself. So uh, you can end up with a scenario in which a human, you, you know, normally we would say, I am 
you know, this is this is our comment, our New York Times opinion section. I'm addicted to my yeah. phone. <laughs> yeah, I just I'm addicted to my phone. But Deleuze and Guattari would say that in fact, what's happening is that you have a haptic relationship. Your hands have a haptic relationship with touching certain icons that are uh, visually more enticing to you and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, so what they're looking for is specificity, but they're also looking for a general system that describes how actual interactions in the world function. And if you're familiar with stuff like uh, Gibson's affordance theory or John Dewey or anything like that, you might notice some immediate resonances. And that's because they all are kind of springing from mm-hmm. the same source, which is um, you know, some American pragmatism, some Bergson, some Gabriel Tard, uh, all these. Uh, there are things in the mainline um design orientation uh philosophical tradition that are in textbooks and this weird very left-wing theory that Deleuze and Guattari have um and so if those sound the same to you it is because they come from the same root um of of thinking so yeah and so then what we have are things uh different ways that that operates so they mention uh d and re-territorialization meaning that there are moments of decoherence where i don't understand myself or i don't understand an apparatus as a coherent object and there are moments where i reconvene it into a coherent object so the example you used michael from the book is a way of thinking of the xbox right so we can think of uh, an xbox as a wholly territorialized object that's my xbox i put discs in it it plays software or we can think of it as a dis- disparate set of materials, which is to say there's a graphics processor in there, there is a normal processor in there, there's heat fans, there are, there are normal fans, there's like the weird fin thing that distributes mm-hmm. heat that makes it die, <laughs> that makes it red ring of death. Uh, there's audio inputs and outputs or audio and video inputs and outputs. There's all this kind of different stuff in it that then a software layer floats on top of. And so if I'm a hacker, I'm thinking of it in those deterritorialized pieces. And importantly, I know where to intervene in that to then reconvene it as a media box that I play right. movies with or something like that. It's, it's about transformation for Deleuze and Guattari. This would be the word becoming between different uh, tentative and contingent states of yes. existence. Um, and uh, yeah. one other thing to mention here, right, is something uh, that I think is actually really sort of important to think about in, in, within broader game studies is uh, the way in which um, <clears throat> like gamers or players or anyone who's like basically familiar enough with games, right, um, is already a kind of machinic in the sense that uh, you come because uh, if you've been playing games since you were very small, as I have, right, the first game system I ever played was like an original NES. Um, there is a familiarity you have with certain conventions about like controlling things, understanding what the what you see on the screen and how it relates to the way you press buttons on the controller. Um, that you slowly internalize and then gets more and more complex as these consoles evolve, right? You you get all of these like weird buttons and triggers and so on and so forth. Um, and if you've ever seen someone who is just really not familiar with, with games uh, or console games even, like try to figure out, I don't know, how to move the camera in a first person game, um, it can be very, very disorienting for them. Um, 
And so uh, they argue that the Xbox kind of leans into this, uh, like, gamer obscurantism. Um, but then they also, at the very end of the chapter, offer the counterexample of the Wii, which actually sort of jettisons all of these complexities of the uh, hardcore um, and sort of minimizes the learning curves for gameplay. And this actually opens up new demographics uh, for gaming, right? Older people, um, even younger people, and especially, like, you know, women players. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the brilliant move of mm-hmm. capitalism, right? And this is kind of what we were talking a little bit about in the previous chapter, or no, uh, in the first chapter, where it is in the interest of the gaming industry and of, of capital E empire generally, because there is no outside, right? There is no new planet to go to to find new populations. There is no uh, hidden utopian island somewhere. There's no Themyscira. <laughs> in which we can find new players, right. right? It is about now the operations of capitalism across the board, and especially within the context of gaming, are about finding the audience that is already there and converting them into a playing yes. population. And any means necessary is okay to do that, right? I mean, we talked about this uh, in last episode with Gina Bloom, but the Wii comes out, and then it discovers there are all these people that are not already disciplined into a particular mode of game playing, but it discovers, this is the crucial part, it discovers that you can do it. And it discovers gaming modes like motion control, like uh, ease of access, all these different things. It discovers these design tendencies that can convert them into a playing mm-hmm. population. And then so everyone goes for it. We talked last time about how Microsoft and then Sony both develop motion capture kind of stuff in order to convert people into a playing population, to capture even more or to convert Wii players into more hardcore players of different types of games. Um, so this is just part and parcel of the whole operation uh, of Empire across mm-hmm. the board. Uh, yeah, So, and I think that's probably that chapter unless you have other things to say. Okay. I do not. Um, banal yes, war. Banal war. <laughs> full spectrum warrior. Uh, so, yes, we're going to talk about full spectrum warrior. Um, we mentioned this. Did we? Was this the one that we? No, we didn't mention this at the beginning, did we? Yeah. Weirdly enough, in the in the intro, they talk about America's right. army, which is also uh, developed in collaboration with the the. the the military. I don't know why I couldn't pull that. That's, <laughs> that, that seems bad. <laughs> I couldn't pull that word. But yeah, yeah, but this is another. So yeah, I, that's why I had to double check because we're, we have at least two shooter games that were developed in conjunction with the U.S. military. Hmm, something to think about. Uh, and this one in spe- specifically is Full Spectrum Warrior, um, which I don't remember the year on it, but it's like very much uh, like post 9/11, like War on Terror. Um, and it's it's a I can't I can't remember if this is like a think tank or an actual like development team the Institute for Creative Technologies uh, this thing this Institute uh, for Creative Technologies um, they want to and and I'm quoting here uh, create veterans who have never seen combat which is um, just you know the that's a terrifying thing to think about but nevertheless right what this really means is they want to uh create a kind of uh, soldier citizen subjectivity right uh the creation of people who uh uh understand or feel a certain way towards combat uh that is not necessarily like 
oh, combat, I don't want to, I don't want any of that noise, right? The idea of the soldier citizen is, um, the citizen who is, uh, willing, if not to actually, like, join the war effort, to, like, join the military, uh, a citizen who has positive feelings toward the military, who has uh, a kind of, like, I don't know, empathy with, or, like, sympathy with, um, the, the military's causes, uh, and one of the ways that, basically, right, uh, uh, propagandize to people to the point where they're like, yeah, soldiers are cool, support the troops. Yes. Um, and so the mechanism through this that they're talking about, the, the Institute for Creative Technologies, this is from the book, uh, quote, based at the University of Southern California, the ICT was created in 1999 by the Army and funded to the tune of $45 million to tap into the entertainment industry's high-tech expertise. So it's, it's funded by the military, but it's based at an institution. Then, this is later in the chapter... Uh, or later in the paragraph, quote, the ICT hired talent from game companies and film studios to collaborate in this mission, colon. Artists who designed special effects for The Matrix, screenwriters for films such as Training Day, a designer from the Alien movies, and so on. The deal was clear, colon again. The military got sophisticated training aids for its soldiers, entertainment companies got insider military knowledge, and the university got external funding. <laughs> So, so that's the idea. It's, so it's kind of a think tank, but kind of a, a think tank that's meant to produce real, actual effects, not just, just white papers or right. something like that. So the game that ends up coming out of, of this kind of weird conjunction of, of, like, academia and the military and game development and capital is Full Spectrum Warrior. Um, and this sort of, like, one of those bizarre accidents of history, because uh, I think, like, the fact that this happened is just so incredible. So there are two versions of this game. One of them is sort of like the mm -hmm. wide release, like public commercial release. Um, and this is part of the deal that has been worked out, right? Is that the, the, the developers get to make and publish this game. They can sell a version of it in order to, to make money. Um, but then there is another version of it, um, slightly different, that is going to be used for military training purposes. So we're going to get more bang for our buck here. Um, but when the game is released... Uh, it turns out, and I'm not sure even how someone figured this out, you can put in a code, like a cheat code, uh, into the commercial release that unlocks the military version and allows this really illuminating comparison uh, between the two different versions of the game. Um, so, like, the commercial release of the game, right, is... Uh, I mean, basically, it's the most stereotypical kind of war movie story you could think of. It's, like, this multicultural team... Um, they're all men. Uh, there's this kind of band of brothers type ethos, uh, you know, and it's like jingoistic. It's a uh, uh, they're uh, fighting like uh, an insurgency in a, a fictional m Middle Eastern country called like Zekistan or something or Zekistan. Um, yep. Yep. And uh, so there's this whole thing where, uh, you know, it's it's exactly what you would expect for this type of, of, of it's like sort of pop culture story. Um and at the same time, right, uh, and this is what's weird, right, is that uh, it is not violent enough. Uh, that is to say, um, the the actual sort of military response to this game is that it is, in being playable, right, in being sort of uh, set up to uh, get soldier citizens, right, rather than just actual soldiers, uh, certain things have to be implemented in the game um, that make the combat more sort of feasible. Um, it, like, these are things like if people in your squad are, are grievously injured, there's a time frame in which you can uh, save them, right? You can heal them or res them. Um, 
there are also, like, for instance, no suicide bombers, right? The enemies do not act uh, in certain ways that uh, the other combatants in an actual military encounter would and do currently act. Um, but if you unlock the, uh, the military version, um, this gets really interesting because it sort of decharacterizes all of the digital, digital actors. Um, this sort of like multicultural like cast of characters that we have in the commercial release um, become just sort of NPCs. Um, they don't have like little backstories or like personalities. Um, the visuals also get slightly downgraded. Uh, the the sort of like narrative campaign that ties the commercial release together is just totally extracted, right? It's just apparently um, a series of sort of simulations or like incidents, scenarios. Um, and the civilian population, the civilian presence in the game increases in the military version, as well as the interaction you have with those civilian NPCs, because they are specifically made more hostile to the player. Um, they sort of like shout like, you know, American dogs and blah, 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 like all this sort of like degradation and abuse at your soldiers. Whereas in the commercial release, when uh, the, the, the civilian population is sort of much more uh, welcoming of the soldiers, right? It's much more of a war. It's it's that it's the narrative of a war of liberation, right? These people want us to be there. Um, whereas the military version is very sort of clear about the fact that, like, you are going to be surrounded by people who do not want you there. <laughs> so I grew up, uh, you know, around a lot of shooting, uh, you know, for sport and for fun and things like that, and, and not for fun sometimes, <laughs> I guess. Um, I grew up around a lot of that kind of stuff, and I, you know, video games don't, or not even right. close, right? Even the loudest, most quote-unquote realistic gunplay in a game, or even gun noises in a game, is like just not, not close all. to the, the impact and, and the force of a gun, right? And so I wonder, right, like, gun-firing games does not acclimatize you to gunfire in real life, so I wonder if NPC screaming in real life in any way actually acclimatizes someone to a person yelling right. in real life um you know i i'm you know i am, am not sold even on the simulation capabilities of this let alone well, and that's the else. other thing right is that the the sort of end result of the uh the military version of this game is that it sucks right it sucks like not not just <laughs> like to play but right it sucks as a training module um because the things that uh the sort of behaviors right the verbs that uh, uh kind of uh I don't remember if this is a first or a third person shooter. Um, anyway, it's, third uh, it's person. a third okay, person so shooter, I believe. The verbs that this yeah. shooter like gives you are not the verbs that you actually would use as as a soldier in a combat zone, because the game doesn't. Um, it's it's like a as a shooter, right? It's a lot of like jumping around the map, like shooting people, blowing things up, hiding behind cover, that sort of thing. Um, but like. You know, if you're actually a soldier, you're going to do things like, uh, like the the game doesn't model buildings, like so. <laughs> a large part of being a soldier is like going into buildings and making sure that there's no one in there who's going to try to snipe you or something, um, and like going up in buildings, right? Clearing floors, having all of these very specific um, uh, protocols for how you are supposed to move your body. Uh, through this space in conjunction with with your squad or whatever um and th the game doesn't have that at all like not even in the military training version and there were concerns about this internally because uh some some documents end up getting turned up and someone in in ict says like the military isn't going to like this because we're not actually like doing anything helpful uh and it turns out that they were right yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, and they, they end up being fired from the yeah. project, right? Because they just won't stop saying the military hates this, and that's kind of why the documents end up coming out, is there's a yeah. lawsuit, I think, right? Um, what I really love about this, and, and you know, this language sucks, and, and the way that, that this ideological argument gets deployed all the time for real and legitimate programs that should be used to help people sucks. I want to be very clear about that. But... A anti-tax uh, or like an anti-government, um, you know, spending project organization called this full spectrum welfare, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean that that that's amazing, right? Or it, as a piece of rhetoric, that's amazing, right? Because it says, look, this is a boondoggle project that produced nothing good. That was just a funnel to throw tax dollars yes. into, um, and. I don't agree with that in places where we're talking about food stamps, mm -hmm. right? But I do kind of think that's probably true here. This was just a way of, of allowing um, third-party corporations to make mm -hmm. money and, and academia to make money full right. stop. <laughs> like, it doesn't seem like this had any actual benefit for anyone. Yeah, and that sort of takes us nearly to the end of the chapter. There's just a couple of more things that they, they cover. One is, okay, so this is weird. Bono from U2? Like that Bono? That Bono. Uh, like, partly, like, provides the, the, the money, the capital needed for Pandemic and BioWare to merge? What? Sometimes, sometimes Bono's involved. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes Bono just shows up and he's like, "Hey, pandemic, Bioware, like you're like merge, become become a company." Yeah, I um, don't so... remember the <laughs> rationale for that, but yeah, it's 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 just a weird detail, and it's something that like if it was talked about at the time, I wasn't hearing it or I didn't remember it. Um, so there's that, uh, and then we also get this really interesting point here that I, I don't know what to do with this. This is another one of those weird moments in this book. Um, they start talking about the wars in the Middle East and how, uh, like, there are gamers there. So I agree with this, right? This is important. Mm -hmm. um, but there are gamers there? I, there I there are gamers agree. in the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> but, like, uh, they talk about, you know, like, Osama bin Laden let his children play Nintendo, right? Because when they were in hiding, there's very little... <laughs> Yeah. that that these kids can do um and then also this reminded me like after after bin laden was executed uh do you remember this like someone found like his laptop and his steam library and like yeah. all of like osama bin laden's like steam library yeah you can um, look at the full i think someone um foyed i'm not quite sure how it came out but there is a full index of everything found in bin laden's like apartment and there are a huge number of PC games, like disc-based mm -hmm. PC games, and then strategy guides. Dude loved strategy, loved buying the strategy guides for yeah. games he was playing, which which is very interesting to me. Right. So um, one of the points to to kind of you know keep in mind here, right, is that these uh, like there really is no outside of empire, right? Like these these things are in are already in the places that are supposedly like the other, right? The Middle East is. Um, like has has sort of these inroads already yeah uh and uh the the authors posit this as part of like primitive accumulation um 
which is to say, like, the the sort of original, like, Marxist idea that before capitalism really gets going, um, it has to, like, slowly kind of, like, sink its hooks into a whole bunch of disparate things, right? Primitive accumulation, meaning, like, a first round of accumulation of resources, um, technology, so on and so forth, uh, to really then kind of instantiate or install, like, the shift to a, a capitalist um, economy. Uh, capitalist mode of production, um, and then, and I, this is this is the part of this argument where I get really confused. Uh, so, whereas uh, a lot of this um, book has been hinging on the differentiation between empire and then what uh, Hart and Negri call the multitude, which we haven't talked about a lot yet, um, but the multitude can be best understood as um, the well, the multitude is everyone. Yeah, it, uh, it is a replacement term for proletariat. Yes. Uh, so, like, the the multitude is the, the massive force of people who are both sort of enclosed and, um, like, they are the consumer base for empire, right, or the labor base, uh, but then also, like, uh, they constantly are sort of outrunning it, right? They are, like, the multitude is capable of um, desiring things or acting in ways that are outside of, of empire's kind of, like, rationalist, like, uh, profit-driven logics. Um, so, th- like, the multitude is the the Xbox hardcore uh, being successfully courted, and then suddenly they're also all hacking their machines, which is not what was wanted at all. Yeah, or it's, um, you know, your local zine group who uh, everyone goes to work at their corporate job during the day and steals 400 copies of their zine and then comes and, like, creates a community at night. Right. Um, so that's the Empire. That's the Multitude. At this point, um, the authors uh, posit a, a third thing, um, that they call theocracy. And I am not sure why they do this. I am not sure that I buy it as a move. Uh, but they say, like, you know, like, perhaps in the future. And I think part of this is, like, this is maybe one of the places where they get the most speculative. Um, but they're like, you know, future games will render theocracy playable because you can play as Empire, you can play as Multitude or whatever. But it's like, what, what does that mean? What Where is this coming from? Yeah, I'm trying to find this in the book. I oh, 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 we anticipate that the coming years will see more games rendering the third protagonist, Theocracy, playable. Uh, and then that is not played out in any way. Right, I like, I just, like, have no idea what they would even have envisioned at this point. Like, there's what a, does that mean? There's a note. Let's look. This is what real reading's about, y'all. Yeah. Um... This is what the note says, quote, It must be said, however, that Islam has no monopoly on religious in-game simulators. Left Behind Eternal Forces, for instance, is a 2006 title in a mainstreaming genre of Christian gaming. Inspired by the apocalyptic scenario of the Book of Revelations, the game depicts life on Earth when signs of the rapture have become transparent, blah, blah, blah. Uh, The main setting of Left Behind is telling you New York City. I think that this claim, uh, I think this claim is saying, since Empire always has a dual face, Right, mm-hmm. like it, it is, uh, it contains the rule, the the rule set for domination and the rule set for liberation within it, and then the multitude as the population that produces that, you know, per, or or is preyed upon by empire, and also can be fully in on uh, being everyone being an entrepreneur and and uh, the kind of re- capital relationship that's that's uh, 
there or being resistant to it, right, by uh, going to your zine festival or whatever, that theocracy must then therefore have a dual side of uh, the fully controlled, uh, you know, state, uh, unification of the nation state and religion, and then the other side, which is some sort of liberatory capacity of that. This, I think, I'm glad that you're bringing this up, this, I think, points to a problem within empire as a mechanism for understanding anything, which is that because there is no outside, the thing that supports everything and the thing that undoes it are, those are the same thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The um, It makes one think about, you know, Audre Lorde and the master's tools argument, right? You can't, you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house is kind of her, right. her famous um, speech she gives to what the... National Women's Studies Association or something like that in the 1980s. Um, within the logic of empire, the master's tools are the only tools that exist. You have to use them to dismantle uh, the house. Right. And I don't know if I find that compelling, mm-hmm. just in general. So I think you're right to point out, ah, what's going on here? But I think as far as theocracy is involved, that's the only out you have, right? Yeah. It's got to be. You have to render it playable in order for games to intervene here productively um and but i think this is the important part too and this is why i don't necessarily buy the argument that happens around bin laden here which is to say that like the united states during the run-up to the post 9-11 and especially during the run-up to the iraq war and and while we were involved in the war in afghanistan or beginning of the war in afghanistan we are still involved in wars in afghanistan and iraq right now uh, (laughs) uh nearly two decades later um but uh, part of that was that kind of clash of civilizations argument that that uh, that the conservative uh, yeah. members of the population were very invested in, which is we are democratic modernity and those countries in the Middle East are theocratic old medieval societies that don't have access to if only they had access to video games, then right. therefore they would know the power of the American mode of doing things. Um, which is not the case. They had video games. It, it, right. it's, a, it's a disagreement about politics, and there's a million different ways of going about it, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like, it is more complicated than they don't know what they're missing um, right. or that they hate us, right? That is insufficient to it because they are already fully w- imbricated within the same global capitalism that some dude in Alabama is, Right. You Mm -hmm. experience global capital in very similar ways, although perhaps unequally and with unequal access to um, amenities and things like that. Um, But as far as the structure of your life in relationship to, say, investment capital or whatever, it's basically the same. Um, And you have to then approach the argument from within that structure, that realism, I think, of how politics functions, as opposed to, well, they just don't know. If only they knew. (laughs) If only we could liberate them into knowing what we know. It's a little bit different. I I think just having more fidelity to material conditions in the world is more important here. But, um, so yeah. Yeah. So um, that's that chapter, really. I think we've kind of got it like we got a title well actually the last thing they talk about is drones they're just like hey by the way like 2009 god oh what a time yeah yep. um hey they're like hey hey here are these things that are called drones and they make uh you know warfare seem even video gamier isn't that weird and it's like yep yep mm-hmm. it, it, drones it is i hope that never happens <laughs> yeah <Ooh. laughs> that would be awful Oof. um <laughs> 
so yeah, and then we move into the next chapter, which is Biopower Play, World of Warcraft. Uh, do you want to define biopower, Michael? Uh, okay. Um, you don't have to if you don't so, want to. I'll do it if you well, want. Well, I mean, you you are the Foucauldian. However, um, I will make a go at this. Okay. So, <clears throat> biopower is, is an idea that uh, comes out of Michel Foucault. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you know anything about Foucault, um, it's all sort of bound up in, in his lifelong concerns about uh, the state and... Um, its methods of discipline and how it sort of constructs subjectivity um, and sort of deviating from, from traditional Marxist understandings like the Althusserian understandings of this um, in that uh, for Foucault, um, what is interesting is kind of the way that the state literally organizes like how life is lived. like. In the, in the most, like, basic literal sense possible. So Foucault says that in, like, the Middle Ages, um, one of the ways that the, 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 uh, the state, or rather, like, you know, sort of the feudalist monarchical um, kind of state, uh, maintained power was the power over life and death. Um, like, you could basically be, um, you know, executed by the king or the king's rep representative. Uh, there were, like, very public... Um, executions, uh, tortures, things like that. Um, and then as we kind of tick toward uh, like what we call modernity, uh, the state stops being so much uh, an instrument of like sort of almost spectacular punishment um, and instead becomes kind of it, like we start to think of the state or the state starts to think of itself as a kind of rational actor. Um, whose job is to ensure other, like, its subjects, its people, its citizens are also being rational actors. And so uh, rather than just having power over life and death, the state is going to take up, um, or rather, like, expanding from the idea of the state having power of life or, or death, uh, the state starts to take an interest in things like um, civic infrastructure, right? Uh, are people, like, eating healthy? Uh are, is there a functioning water system? Like, who's getting clean water? Who isn't? Um, how are people being taught to care for themselves? Uh, are they capable, like, you know, how are we putting systems in place to, to ensure that people uh, know how to tend to their own life in a way that is beneficial to the larger life of the state itself? Does that seem about fair? Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, there's several knock-on effects of that, right? So... One of them is that you create a universal equivalence of bodies. Yes. Right. So it's not that um, it, it's not about what kind of people with what kind of ability or what kind of people in what part of the city get access to water. It is how does everyone get access to water um, agnostic of those conditions. And of course, in practical in, in actual practice, that's not equivalent. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Foucault is very open that biopolitics is, is fundamentally dependent on racism. Um, mm -hmm. it, it needs racism to function because it needs a baseline of what kind of bodies require the most kind of care. And so you create mm -hmm. you create a racialized system of that in order to create a class of people who have who do not need to be accounted for. Um, and so the kind of uh, way of talking about biopolitics that comes out of the history of sexuality, volume one, and then some of his lectures, particularly the birth of biopolitics, is that biopolitics is the work of letting live and allowing to die. 
what populations yes. do you let live and what populations do you allow to die which is not kill right which right. is just to create a, a system of fundamental inequivalence um mm -hmm. inequivalence in what you do to them but equivalence in the sense that they are all the same right so as you're saying this this is part of the onset of modernity and ideas like citizen right um or subject or, or or the move from subject to citizen i guess i should say um and i mean like royal subject in that sense mm -hmm. um so yeah so yeah I, I think that's the the general move there and so it's about population management um i particularly like the logic of of docile bodies that comes out in discipline and punish which is a little bit of before he comes up with specifically the idea of biopower but it's very similar um the idea that all bodies can do all things that all bodies can do meaning that the ceiling for the human is relatively high and if you begin to think of people as disciplinable into a particular shape then most bodies can hit that shape and so then you can create a society um that tends towards certain functions okay so what's the practical example of that earlier we were talking about standing up and yelling mcdonald's that is a system of discipline <laughs> that assumes that most people can stand up and yell McDonald's, right? Um, mm -hmm. The people that can do that in a world where we have the stand up and, and yell at the advertisement uh, thing, uh, most people who begin doing that become disciplined into it. You see the first frame, you start standing up and yelling McDonald's, all of that. Obviously, there are people who can't stand up for whatever reason. They, they have a disability, mm -hmm. they don't want to. Um, they believe they're being persecuted by the government, and so they uh, believe this is a form of mind control, right? There, there are all kinds of people in the world. Um, and those are outside of the purview of this thing. However, biopolitics right. is considered with, with big population management. It's concerned with averages, right? And so they're right. shooting for the largest segment of the population they can hit, and then everyone else is unattended to, and then eventually they become tactically unattended to, which is why we have cities without curb cuts um, mm -hmm. for people in wheelchairs. This is why we have um, city buses that don't have any accessibility, that have, in a theoretical sense, accessibility for people in wheelchairs, but in a practical sense, they do not. You know, It's so much of a time sink and a difficult process that people in wheelchairs don't even bother to try, things like that. Right. Um, so biopolitics becomes a, a mode of universalist inclusion, but those who are excluded are fundamentally excluded, right? Yes. Um, so mm -hmm. it, it's a both and kind of thing. So, yeah. Right. So, and that's also World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, so uh, <laughs> the, the, the problem that World of Warcraft, right, is an MMO, not even necessarily a problem, but the interesting development that the MMO introduces into biopolitics um, for the authors here is... Um, what they call a kind of doubled sovereignty. So whereas uh, in traditional biopolitics, like you have, you know, your city or your state or whatever, and generally speaking, everything there is on the same ontological level. Like doing biopolitics in, in an actual like physical like state is, is you know, all on the level. Uh, WoW is interesting because uh, it doubles the sovereignty because there is on the one hand, um, the kind of like technical infrastructure upon which like wow must operate uh so like internet connections the the um server system um and things like that and uh the like blizzard is 
to some extent, right, uh, tasked with maintaining and upkeeping all of this infrastructure, um, at least the parts of it that are theirs, right? And but then also like sort of floating on top of of the the actual infrastructure is this entire virtual world uh, filled with people doing things, um, and they need to be managed, right? They they need to be like disciplined when they are cheating or something like that um, but also they need to be shepherded into uh, ways that are going to like meet the the ways that uh you know blizzard is expecting to make revenue on this game right playing uh um playing the 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 kind of like auction house like gambling market uh trading things for uh like buying expansions so on and so forth uh so there's this really interesting uh thing that happens where there's like basically an entire half of of uh wow's kind of biopolitical uh affairs that the players have no access to at all like players have nothing to do with with the server system with the infrastructure um so it's only in kind of that like virtual world that is represented on top of it that uh, players have any sort of capacity to act. Yes. Uh, the other way that this gets put right is uh, like the 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 publisher's power is constituted uh, by the players. That is to say, the the publisher would have nothing to do. Right, Blizzard would have nothing at all to do if no one wanted to play their game. However. Um, once the players decide to buy into the game, once they sort of like get into WoW, um, what they are allowed to do gets constituted by, like, they are now constituted by what, um, the publisher is willing to allow them to do. This is what we were kind of talking about earlier, uh, as far as, um, that games are, you know, they form around a subject, but then they produce that subject too at the same time, right? Um, right. Similar kind of stuff. And from there, from here, they go into actual China. Yes. And gold like farming, Chi quote unquote, yeah. Chinese gold farmers. Right. Um, yeah. So WoW gets super, super big in, in the U.S. Um, and then uh, once it branches out into China, things get kind of different because, well, I mean, obviously they get different, but they get very interesting um, because of like the situation of China and the uh, like the political and economic situation of, of Asia and Southeast Asia generally. Um, so, uh, for instance, uh, the way that they put this right, China uh, as a state has a willingness to kind of uh, intervene in uh, lives of its citizens in, in fairly direct ways by which uh, like one example they give are like fatigue rules like after a certain number of hours I guess um, there was a law passed where like uh, after a certain number of hours of playing an MMO like you would get kicked off or could get kicked off but then also like aside from that they, they mentioned that these laws get passed but then also apparently they're not enforced unless like you're a child <laughs> Mm. <laughs> um so there's a weird thing that happens there right uh and um you know sort of the 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 chinese political context which they call authoritarian state capitalism um as as kind of like the successor to maoism uh yeah so uh one of the things that happens in china uh is uh, after uh, sort of the, the decline of Maoism and uh, the rise of uh, Deng Xiaoping's what they call uh, authoritarian state capitalism, um, which I guess like you you might quibble with that um, just because I've 
I think that's a very strange way to refer to what is happening in China, which I don't think is necessarily great, but like authoritarian state capitalism is just an odd phrase. Um, the one of the things that happens is uh, as like China becomes more of a center of production of people working in factories and people are uh, being forced out or encouraged to move out of the uh, sort of rural areas um, in order to move to the cities to urbanize. Uh, to work in these factories, which, by the way, are also, like, ruining the environment, right? Making farming increasingly untenable as a lifestyle. Um, they then, like, the farmers have to come into the city to work in these factories uh, in producing all of these various things. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that happens is you have this huge workforce that uh, is trained to do one thing, which is to farm, um, and are probably, like, you don't have the time to train them to do new things, to find them new types of interesting jobs. And so uh, you get this like massive workforce that can do fairly simple things, um, repetitive things, uh, sort of in mass, like at a, at a huge scale. Um, so a lot of these farmers who get sort of displaced or dispossessed uh, become gold farmers in WoW, um, doing shifts of like very simple actions and quests like repeatedly in order to uh, build up enough gold that can then be resold uh, like build up gold in the game that can be resold for real dollars on a, a kind of secondary or meta market mm -hmm. um, and so that I mean so all of that has to be I mean I, I guess has to be is, is um, in quotation marks maybe but all that is managed right and so what they're trying to draw here is a top-down picture or maybe they're trying to give us like a schema of the relationship between a you know uh blizzard activision what is now blizzard activision the state of china the material conditions on the ground as far as like agriculture is concerned the uh the uh, increased number of internet cafes and things like that and then how that all fits into what we think of as a, as a big circuit of culture, but it's in fact pretty small in this big network, which is the actual operations of playing on World of Warcraft. So every time, you know, in 2008 or whatever, every time that you go and raid and, the, and you know, you go and buy whatever, um, you go and buy healing potions and things of that sort on the, the marketplace, uh, on the auction house in World of Warcraft, the prices on that auction house are being fundamentally altered by this change in the global economy. And that change in the global economy has to do with Chinese state-based tactics that right. are happening. So every time that you went to go fight, I don't know, uh, <laughs> uh, Anixia or whatever, maybe mm -hmm. that's a little bit earlier, but every time you go and fight Anixia, you are participating in a big global economic systemic chain that doesn't necessarily feel that way, but you are. Um, and then one of the things that is important about gold farmers, right, is they they make this clear in a way that uh, very little else does. Yes, they make this crystal right. clear. Um, right, the, the presence of gold farmers within WoW um, becomes uh, controversial um, for both kind of like the, the, the publisher and like developers managing this game, but also like for, for the player base, because, uh, you know, for the players, this, like, the presence of gold farmers kind of, like, undermines the, the meritocratic fantasy of, of the game itself, right? The, the idea that when you're playing WoW, you just, like, pop into existence at whatever your, like, player race's, like, starting point is. Um, and you have 
the most basic things imaginable. And then through hard work, ingenuity, and determination, you scale up to level whatever the hell they have up to now, and you get your mount and your really cool Blizzard-style armor and so on and so forth. Um, that all gets undercut by the fact that uh, you could have just gone to whatever site you use, uh, paid a bunch of real-world money to get enough gold to then go back into the game and buy all the crap that you wanted. Yeah, and all the people who are doing that are fundamentally driving up prices anyway. Right. So so you're still having that happen to you no matter what. Um, right, yeah. so it, yeah. Um, and it is interesting because, uh, well, a couple of things, right? Uh on the one hand, this touches on some of the stuff that Kel Watt talks about, right? About sort of the degradation of play. Mm. Um, but then it also touches on some stuff that Bloom talked about, which is namely that, uh, so one of the things the authors say is that, uh, you know, to actually, like, to if, if gold farming were a problem for Blizzard or Blizzard Activision or whatever, like, if it was something they wanted to stop, they could do it, right? Like, yeah. it could be implemented, but... In order for it to be stopped, the game would have to be decommodified. So there is something about the way that the game itself is commodified, right? The game itself um, generates uh, profit for Blizzard in these specific ways that they don't want to give up. And so gold farming becomes a kind of um, integral form of cheating. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think that's really interesting, right? Yeah. Um, no, it is like... It, it basically, right, it takes the, the market logic ad that is already at work in the game, and rather than being like, oh, and this is just something that's happening in the background of, like, our fun fantasy adventure, it's like, no, this is what we're here for. Yeah, 100%. This is, this, this is what the whole deal is. Right. Well, speaking of the uh, whole deal, and, and being the whole deal, um, the, next, the next chapter, I think, is pretty heavily involved in that. Um, yeah. Meaning that the the next chapter is also an instance in which the game is the world that we live in and the world uh, that we live in is the game. Um, yes. And you were tweeting all about this. Yes, I tweeted about this. So this chapter is it's chapter six, Imperial City, Grand Theft Auto. This is a really good chapter um, in, in kind of a scary way because basically uh, broad strokes, what this chapter does is it does a, uh, it's, it's using the Grand Theft Auto franchise um, as kind of a test bed for a lot of the ideas that we've talked about thus far, right? Um, it's reading that series through this idea of empire multitude, um, you know, finding out, like, you know, exploitations and things like that. Uh, and then they sort of read, uh, they do Vice City, um, San Andreas, and Grand Theft Auto IV. Uh, they do kind of individual sections of this chapter that do, uh, not, not like super deep, but like, uh, fairly extensive kind of like ideological readings and critiques of each of these games kind of in sequence and sort of the various uh social movements and problems that they are trying to sort of in some ways interact interface with um and then they have a kind of summary about like the franchise as a whole and what it's doing and uh basically how it fails constantly in in, in supposedly trying to be a kind of like critique of the modern world because this is how a lot of grand theft auto uh it's a lot of its content is positioned as kind of satirical as as over the top um but uh they then sort of conclude right but really like this thing is just like the cynical logic of capitalism all the way down um and it is just 
an absolutely like perfect way of also talking about Grand Theft Auto V. Like there is nothing that has really changed in in Grand Theft Auto as a franchise. Now who knows what things are going to be like whenever the next one comes out. Um, but it is just incredible, like how accurate this chapter is. It just in terms of it's like doing a pure culture studies, like representational critique uh, of this series, like how on point it is. Yeah, and, and that's maybe it's interesting that you found this. Uh, or not, I mean, not interesting, but we had different reactions to this chapter. Where yeah. I like blazed through it because I was like, all right, fine. I think I'm looking at my notes. I took five notes about this chapter. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, I, 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 I'm on board with it, but I, I didn't feel like this moved the book forward very much, right? It, it kind of felt like a little bit of tire spinning here. Because um, mm-hmm. I think everything in here is correct, but I didn't really see it, it um, advancing the case for why Empire is the most appropriate method for addressing these games. Because. It just keeps going back to what I think is is um, like not an inaccurate uh, mode of representing these games and not an inaccurate mode of critique for talking about games, but one that does not require this entire big apparatus of Empire to talk about. Meaning that the critique of at least uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City and Grand Theft Auto 3 is that these are just neoliberalism represented for us. Meaning mm-hmm. it is a, a world in which everyone is an entrepreneur, in which government organizations are fundamentally non-existent unless you run into them in some sort of antagonistic way. So the police are not going to care about you unless they see you steal a car in front of them or smash into them or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there's that part, and then you're constantly accruing things. In uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, you're constantly accruing um, capital in the sense of you know you buy a strip club you buy uh, like a porn studio um, mm-hmm. you're doing that you're buying property that generates money as well you're, you're, you become this kind of rentier um, all of that is true like a hundred percent this doesn't need empire to talk about it. you just need a critique of neoliberalism which has been ongoing since the 1970s in order to talk about it so I you know I was kind of like a little bit let down by this chapter um, <laughs> it, it, it feels like something vestigial that they got to this book on Empire through this argument. This argument mm-hmm. didn't feel like it needed to be in the book for me. No, I actually think I agree. I do think that, like, as, as interesting as I think this chapter is, like, I don't think it's, it, it's, its absence would not compromise the integrity of the entire book or the project here to my mind because uh, I was mostly just shocked by, like, how this this argument came out was published is like fairly accessible and then they made grand theft auto 5 which just almost doubled down on every single aspect of this oh a million percent right grand theft auto 5 is bizarre it's like if they read this and were like yeah okay that's a good good manual right that was what it was like i was like it's like they read this and then they were like okay for grand theft auto 5 we'll make this game (laughs) um and i think you've pulled the really good quote here so on 169 um this is when they're talking about san andreas um which is maybe the most important or interesting part of the chapter to me which is is. where they actually add race in as Uh and one of the few times where race race qua race as we talk about in the united states actually shows up in this book um But uh, the quote you have written down is on 169, uh, quote, the semi-utopian moment is the product of a path of hybridized free enterprise, meaning that you can enter uh, that that neoliberalism or the idea that we're all entrepreneurs and that the best thing for us is free markets and free agency and the ability to make rational choices. 
um, that that has a utopian horizon to it, a place that we want to reach. And that re- that place is this kind of fundamental equivalence of all people to operate with and against one another with their own street or their own corner or their own music studio that works in a beautiful harmony of market-based solutions in order to give everyone what they want which is the story of san andreas right it's about kind of coming up in the world but becoming ice cube right i mean i i think that the huge mistake of grand theft auto 5 was not showing um gosh what's the name of the main character in san andreas uh, uh, CJ? Yeah, CJ. It, CJ should have been, you know, you can sit down and watch TV in all those games or in, in 4 and 5. Mm-hmm. You should be able to sit down and turn on the TV and see CJ in Without a Paddle or whatever that movie was. Yes. No, <laughs> that, that absolutely not, should have happened. Yeah, what? Ah, oh, jeez. Um, uh, Ice Cube family movie. It's not Without a Paddle. Yeah, the um, Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? Yes. You should be able There's to like, see CJ doing that. Yeah, there are like three or four of them. <laughs> yes, yeah, there are there are, there are a couple now. Yeah. But you should be able to like you. What would be great is if Grand Theft Auto Five, if it truly did, fully, um, I don't know, embrace what's happening in this chapter, it would go back and show everyone fully eaten by the system that they are participating in. Participating in. That's not mm-hmm. to say that Ice Cube is compromised, you know, <laughs> but I think. If the question is, are we there yet? We're, we're there yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're there now. We, we've reached the horizon of neoliberalism. This yeah. is our semi-utopian moment. Yeah. Congrats. Um, um, yeah, so anyway, that's that's the chapter on Grand Theft Auto. Um, and so we get to the last part, which is part three of the book. And it's chapter seven and eight. And I think we could probably talk about them together. Um, because this is the big resistance move. Mm-hmm. You know, this is if if the multitude. We talked a little bit about multitude before, but you know, multitude. If if there's a way out, um, what in chapter eight they're going to call following Hart uh, and Negri, they're going to call Exodus. Um, if there's a way out, it is through recognizing how empire functions and then tactically resisting that. Of course, everyone always goes back to the kind of inaugural moment that brings together um, or or that that helps push. Um, the book Empire into the Public Eye, which is the World Trade Organization protests in Seattle, in which uh, trade leaders, uh, trade countries who were leaders in trade from all around the world, came to Seattle, and there was a massive, the largest protest in American history up till that point, up until the Iraq War protests. Um, and they came, and, and protesters were tear gassed and brutally suppressed in the streets of Seattle, um, and it kind of said here's what the 21st century is going to be for many people but Hart and Negri looked to that moment and they looked to moments after that in in multitude they then look back to the protests of the Iraq war to say um and then in the book after that Commonwealth which is which comes out after this book that we're reading here which suggested even more big model of democratic organization around the world all of that is to say that uh people showing up to do the protest is a sign that we can overcome the people that are tear gassing them. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know either. I think maybe there's a different different route that we might have to take for that. But mm-hmm. the work of chapter seven and eight are saying if that is true and if that can happen, this is where it happens in games. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so maybe it's worth I, like I don't know if I think that the the specifics of this 
argument as it plays out if you're very interested in it, this either read chapter seven or just go read multitude the heart and negri mm-hmm. book i think it'll be just as helpful for you here but michael you have outlined the six pathways of yes. multitudinous activity quote unquote mm-hmm. that that uh that would allow this to happen within games do you want to do you want to run through those really quick yeah sure so um basically uh there there are six ways uh that the authors see uh multitudinous activity happening um the first one is what they call counterplay so this is where um a a player in a game uh sort of actively works against the ideology that is being presented to them by the game um what's a good example of this cameron um uh if you go and play skyrim as a pacifist Yes, or play okay. any game as a pacifist if you can, right? But yeah. uh, but I, I think a, a lot about James Shermer, his blogging about playing uh, Skyrim as a farmer and just going mm-hmm. and going to a farm and only attacking people if you have to if they come to your farm and invade you or whatever because you know the game will spawn bandits on the road who will walk along the road and if they get near you they'll attack you and things like that but mostly just making cabbages and stuff like that um that's doing something different and resistant to the ideology of skyrim which is expand explore go to every corner of the world find every magical item kill every monster make this world your full domain right right Uh, become the best fighter in the world become the best wizard also become the best thief and murderer <laughs> right get to the top to every single guild <laughs> yeah exactly um so this is counterplay this is trying to f- pull out a different kind of ethical message from a system that affords it but does not valorize it right um so that's counterplay the second one is dissonant development so this is when like uh, what they call critical content appears in mainstream games um and i would say that like the a good example of this is something like Spec Ops The Line, right? Yeah. A game that um, is a sort of mainstream game, but is clearly openly invested in uh, putting forth a kind of critical message about uh, about like America's practices uh, with warfare in the Middle East. Yes, 100%. So, um, uh, tactical games is the third one. Um, and these are games that are designed by activists as a form of activism. Uh, they aren't going to get uh, maybe as much sort of attention because of this, uh, but um, let's see, what's a, what's a really good accessible example? Because I feel like these can be very like uniquely obscure. Um, yeah. Um, some that immediately come to mind are some recent ones. So um, Elizabeth LaPensee's game, uh, Thunderbird Strike, in which you mm-hmm. play, I think, an, I, I don't want to get this wrong, but I believe it's Ashinabe uh, figure, of uh the the thunderbird and you're going and blowing up oil pipelines um and she, right. she's at the university of michigan i believe and she kind of got in trouble uh because she's a state employee she got in trouble right. with like michigan uh politicians because of the kind of content which they said advocated for you know terrorism or something like that right um so yeah that's uh that's that kind of game that's a tactical game um then there are polity simulators, which they uh, compare to, uh, like, what Bogost would call serious games. Yeah. Um, and have we had a good serious game lately? I feel like these are very, very, yeah. like, a 2000s kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, the the big examples always are, like, Mole Industria, Paolo Pericini, uh, his yeah. games, right? So, like, his Apple, his uh, game where you work in a Foxconn factory. Um, yeah that kind of stuff his his game where you're you play the mcdonald's simulation uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that 
Yeah. Um, then there are uh, self-organized worlds. Um, so th these are situations in which um, a group of players, and this especially happens um, in MMOs, uh, they develop content and protocols independently of the publishers. Um, so I don't remember what MMO this is specifically, but they mentioned, for instance, uh, one MMO shut down, and so a group of players got together and essentially bought some, like, the servers or something in order to keep kind of the um, game going kind of themselves, uh, even after after the publisher was no longer supporting it. Yeah, that's um, uh, Uru. A, yes. Uh, Uru Ages of Mist, I think it's called, but it's the MMO version of Mist that came out in yes. the late 90s, early 2000s. Okay. Um, and then uh, Software Commons is the final one. And these are, uh, if not open source, um, then at least more accessible or transparent practices uh, within the development of, of uh, software and uh, IP and things like that. But then also, um, and this is important, right? This also includes things like ROMs, ROM preservation archives, which we've seen uh, get shut down in the past like year um or so right there's been been kind of an uptick in like nintendo uh trying to take down rom archives yeah um so we can see that you know even though this is a multitudinous activity we can see uh if not capital e empire then at least the part of it that nintendo as a corporation constitutes like trying to shut down some of this multitudinous activity yeah, I mean, I think that, and, and this is the problem. So, so um, Hart and Negri write Empire, and then Multitude, and then several years later, kind of a big gap later, they write Commonwealth, and then they have written a pamphlet since then. Um, I mean, it's like a short book called Assembly. This that was right after, uh, not quite right after Occupy, but pretty similar, or you know, in that time frame, it's in response to Occupy. Um, importantly, it came out as a Kindle single. So think about Ooh. that. Yeah, get get that in your brain. Um, it, but so, so I, I took a course, um, with, uh, weirdly enough in Exodus in this last chapter, Ted Friedman comes up. Um, Ted Friedman <laughs> was a faculty member at Georgia state that I took several classes with. I took all of my coursework in Marxism with him. Um, so it's interesting to see that he gets, uh, gets shouted out here. Um, but I took a class with, with Ted where we, um, where we read Assembly. I think Assembly had just come out and we, and we read it. And our kind of feeling after that... Hey, this is Cameron. Way in the edit. The book is not called Assembly, it's called Declaration. Hart and Negri were just not prepared for the level of wholly constitutive integration that would happen between the internet, the government, and private corporations. Like, mm -hmm. they, they are just not aware enough of how infrastructure works like on a basic material level to offer ways of dealing with that. So like the way that ROM sites get taken down is that there's of course the legal threat of the takedown, right? Uh, the cease and desist, <laughs> that kind of thing. But there is also the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which would allow uh, Nintendo to not only go after the person uploading the ROMs and the person providing the ROMs, the, the person who owns that, but also the web host and also mm -hmm. the uh, internet service provider, right? So Comcast or Cox or whoever that is, right? There are levels of, of tactical monetary vulnerability that are built into the system to make everyone so, at every level, so overwhelmingly risk averse that it is in everyone's best interest, right? This is the ultimate neoliberal move. Everyone being a rational actor means that suppression is the most important thing they can be doing. 
more than creating new content, more than creating new avenues of revenue uh, income, it is more important to prevent revenue loss, particularly through legal systems, than it is to generate actual money. So it's it's all through vulnerability and tactical mm-hmm. vulnerability. Um, and that's just not in this, right? Like there, there's just right. no way of having that discussion within either this book, and I don't think it's their fault, but within the framework that they have chosen to adopt, which is Hart Negri's entire philosophical apparatus. Right. And I talk about in my notes, right? I, we haven't really talked about but I talk about sort of like this, I, I find something uh, sort of overly romantic about this notion of the multitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and especially like romanticized and it's just not, not that like multitudes are not bad, right? That's not me being like Ugh, the multitude, but more like um, the multitude becomes extract abstracted here in ways uh, that are not actually helpful. <laughs> Yeah, in the same way that we kind of, uh, we talked about that um, uh, Murray in Hamlet on the Holodeck kind of misses social media, um, Mm -hmm. you know, because it doesn't exist yet. I feel like this book, and and by virtue, the same virtue, Hart and Negri, miss social media. And this is also a product of time, right? This comes out the same Mm -hmm. year that Twitter came out, right? 2009. Um, But Hart and Negri, even in the books after social media exist, I mean, they are very um, uh, enthused about the Arab Spring, for example, as everyone even remotely connected to politics or media studies was because it was highly reliant on the Internet, social media, all these different things. But also, I don't think that they were willing to see the ways that Empire, capital E Empire, was also just as easily able to harness those things, right? Like... It's right. easy. Fa- Facebook is empire. You know, it's 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 constitutive of empire in the same way that Activision Blizzard is and probably more powerful than any individual actor within it. And so I think it's very difficult to have this kind of conversation about what does resistance or what does change look like underneath this model without really looking at the vectors through which resistance is destroyed. Um mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think now you have things, particularly in the games industry, around Game Workers Unite, for example, which has had uh, an overwhelming response on Twitter in particular, but they have very few people on the ground. And I don't mean that as a critique, but I, I mean that as a just a material reality. They have people who are working in lots of different places, and there, and there have been lots of different local organizing movements that have appeared. Um, but those could be smashed um, very mm-hmm. easily by the very vectors that allow them to propagate their message. And the minute that they become difficult for those vectors, I, I, I don't see why they wouldn't be smashed. And so it requires some real serious material on the ground organizing. Uh, and it kind of heartens me to see that obviously that's happening in places like Austin, yes. in places like Silicon Valley, um, you know, these big hotbeds of development. Right. Well, and this also speaks, you know, precisely to the problem that you outlined with um, the the two faced nature of like the multitude and empire, where e- like yeah. So even though the multitude is constantly kind of um, outstripping the invention of empire, empire is still really damn good at uh, being like, oh shit, we didn't plot like we didn't expect that. Let's monetize it. Yeah. Right. Like. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Like they're really good at that, and in fact, sort of the um, the last chapter, Exodus, the metaverse and the minds. Unless you have something else you want to say, I think I, actually I don't, this yeah. is a, okay. I was gonna say this is like a good move into this because the last chapter is about, of all things, the video game Spore. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and my note here is just spore oh my god spore because spore is one of those things that like i just haven't really thought about in so long except outside of like a mcelroy brothers video right yeah um that like at the time right spore like the marketing around spore right sort of the hype around spore what it was expected to be and then like the massive debacle that it was when it was released which they get into because of the game's sort of like drm policies and so on and so forth um basically they they read uh spore it's uh sort of marketing and it's after it's release and it's aftermath here as as kind of a t case study for three things um one is species being which they draw from marx uh one is exodus which they uh draw from hart and negri and um then general intellect which i think they also take from marx is yeah. that right yeah, yeah. that, that so. i'm not quite sure i know that that gets talked about in the grandissa which is kind of the big 1960s and 1970s book that political organizers were, were reading from marx mm -hmm. um if games workers unite people who are listening to this, you might consider going and looking at the Grandissa um, because it dealt quite a lot with what does Marx's what does Marxism, you know, as per Marx's words, how did he think about things that were not strictly labor? Um, so this is where a lot of stuff like uh, immaterial labor comes out of. It comes from readings from the Grandissa or readings of mm -hmm. the Grandissa. Right. Um, so what is important about Spore for this particular project, right, is that Spore kind of gamifies Marx's, Marx's idea of species being, um, which is essentially, right, the, the idea uh, that Marx um, puts forth, uh, sort of one of the ideas that underlines kind of the idea of communism, that um, as a species, humanity is capable of uh, sort of recognizing itself or cognizing itself even uh, as uh, a kind of entire species with a kind of common interest, right? Sort of continued survival or what have you or whatever. And we can intervene in our society and in our environment in tactical ways in order to make the world better, right? We can like essentially start building a better history. Um, do you think that's a fair fair characterization of species being? Yeah, 100%. Um, okay. And that it creates like a it's a shared condition that it, because like the promise of communism, right? Like in its most base yeah. form is that industrial capital happens and you can universally transform industrial capital into something else. And so you need species being in order to think about how that transformation happens. Um, if I'm working in, in Pittsburgh and you're working in the East end of London and we're both similar types of proletarian workers but obviously our social conditions are radically different our class conditions all those different things but in the way that we are made to think about the world we have a different kind of species being right now when you begin to think of that in actually truly global context i don't know how shareable that is um mm -hmm. in media studies and kind of industrial studies we've we've had to invent all kinds of weird language to get around that i say we that that field i'm not part of that field but so <laughs> so for example in sub-saharan africa um one of the big the big most contemporary things that's happened is that people have cell phones they have the ability to access the internet and you might have the ability to access the internet but not really have access to clean water like that's a thing that happens mm -hmm. in communities all over the world that happens in the united states that happens right. in flint michigan so let's uh, well you know. i mean it's yeah oh it's the sort of thing it's the kind of like awful conservative commentator like i saw a homeless person with a phone 100 percent, right like um, yeah, and so we have to invent words like, uh, I think it's called the leapfrog effect or something like that, where um, 
in the United States, for example, we have layers of infrastructural development that have happened, right? So uh, running water up through landline telephone wire up through, um, you know, more complicated, you know, more complicated stuff like that. And then eventually mm-hmm. that, that leads to infrastructure like the cell phone tower. And all of those things are interrelated to one another in different ways by our public utilities or stuff like that. But in Ethi- rural Ethiopia, you might have a cell phone, but not any of those other things. And so how do you account for a shared experience of, say, the cell phone, where everyone has a cell phone, but they definitely don't have all the other contexts that, that might be shared? So right. species being might not be super helpful for us there, I think. Um, right. Well, and I think that's actually a really great idea of like what happens with Spore and species being, right? Because uh, Spore as a game promises um, to kind of like allow you to from, from, you know, literal like unicellular organism to spacefaring civilization. Um, yeah. Like that, like Spore was marketed as like the sim to end all sims. Um, and it turns out it's just a really weird toy where you can make lots of different things that sort of look like Shrek. Um, <laughs> but uh, sort of like what it was um, positioned as in marketing, what it was imagined to be was sort of this extremely vast um, game, the likes of which we had never really seen before, that really like delivered on this promise of like steering the, the entire evolution of this particular like species. Um, however... Um, the, uh, game gets, it's, it's very mediocre, right? As a game, it ends up being very mediocre. Mm -hmm. Um, there's this huge DRM debacle where, like, players, uh, couldn't, like, it was like, was it, like, one install, actually, that they could have, or maybe two? No, you could have Um, three installs, but under one username. Right. Um, so just, like, all of these, all of these actual, like, things interfere with uh, Spore kind of achieving um, the effect that the marketing suggests that it wanted to have. Um, And this sort of pushes us, uh, us kind of in quotes here, uh, toward uh, the recognition that there is a need for Exodus, right? These games cannot deliver on um, their potential because they're constrained by uh, corporate interests, by um, people who are more interested in controlling intellectual property and where it's flowing, where it's getting installed, um, than actually like making species being a thing that people can interact with, think about, or play. Um, so we need Exodus, which is not just like this simple escape from the system of capitalism, right? But um, for Hart and Negri is kind of a uh, moment of social transformation that leads us out of empire. And like to like the Deleuze and Guattarian uh, way of thinking about this, it would be like a state change, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, like the moment that like uh, in, in water, when it gets cold enough, ice crystals start to form. And then that process speeds up and suddenly you have ice instead of liquid water. Uh, this is a way of thinking about what Exodus would be. It would be the moment where um, things start aligning or connecting themselves in such a way that a world that is not empire, a world that is not neoliberal capital, uh, can suddenly start to emerge. Yep. Um, so empire wants to constrain the general intellect um, uh, with its knowledge economy. Um, that is to say, right, like, empire wants us to, like, empire has thoughts about what its subjects should be thinking right? It doesn't want us to think things outside of, of certain prescribed roles or behaviors. It wants to dictate certain ways of interacting with the world. Games, as this book has tried to sort of 
argue, and I think, you know, basically been successful at, uh, games are apparatuses, are devices, are machines um, for training people to interact with the world in certain ways, right? Not in even just like, oh, I'm going to play my virtual reality KFC chicken frying game so I don't get fried myself in real life. Um, but, you know, sort of the 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 uh, subject kind of, as we've talked about, like relies on... Uh... <clears throat> Sorry, I need a drink. No good. <clears throat> So the subject both uh, sort of comes into being uh, because of the machine and in some ways, like, also goes beyond it. Uh, yeah. Right. So um, they can be, games could be these machines or these tools for imagining of different worlds, um, potentially uniting all of these concerns, and they're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I... Uh, I mean, at the end, your very last note, not not to call yeah. out your note here, but your very last note says at the very end in parentheses, well, yes, well, no, it's it. Yeah, the hope finally is that commercial games culture will incubate subjects more capable of realizing games multitudinous potential, which is like, yeah, <laughs> yep, I sure do hope that. <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah, and they actually, the thing that we're kind of like skipping over here that I think is really important, right, is so there's all of this, right? Games can be this, they are this, mm-hmm. but but games are as products, their consoles as products, computers, our cell phones as products rely on absolutely horrifying neo-imperial uh, violence carried out in like Africa, right? It's like the Democratic Republic of Congo. People working in mines to get the minerals that we need to make these really tiny transistors. Um, but then also, we have waste that is, you know, poisonous because we have all of these chemicals and all of these minerals that we're digging up out of the ground and putting into uh, machines that are designed to be obsolete within two years. And so we have these massive uh, yards of um electronic waste old computers and so on and so forth that often end up in like um south asia right and there are there are people whose entire livelihood is about going through these e-waste uh um like landfills and finding things that can be uh reused or sold for for some sort of value right like finding uh the minerals that might still have something going for them um yeah so uh like on the one hand, games as as kind of media objects or whatever, they might be able to do this. And then on the other hand, like games as they are produced, games as we understand them, um, are materially predicated on just awful, awful practices. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I would encourage people. So it was last updated in August 29th, but just go and read. So you can read, just Google like Sony Conflict Minerals. And you can read mm-hmm. Sony, for example, and this is the just the one that, that I've looked at recently. You can read their own statement on conflict minerals. So they say, um, this is just the first paragraph to give people a taste. The Democratic Republic of the Congo and its adjacent countries have been mired in conflict with armed groups perpetuating human rights abuses in that region. These armed groups have been trading in certain minerals commonly found in that region to finance their activities, right? So you, you become a, a, a local trader of some sort. You begin exporting conflict minerals and that strengthens your position. So going back, quote, these foreign minerals 
Columbite Tantalite, also known as Coltan, Cassertite, Tin, Gold, and Wolframite, which is Tungsten, are constantly found in many products ranging from jewelry to electronics to airplane components. And then they talk about the thing that actually made them write this statement, which is the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. So the only reason, I mean, there's a moral reason, right? But the reason that there is a document up on Sony's website about this is because of American law. Hard stop, period. Mm-hmm. Um, there is nothing preventing this from happening and other than that. And it seems to me like you need empire is obviously bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's uh, uh, we actually have like one piece of reader mail that okay. I would like to cover. I know we've, we've got another like three hour podcast. Good God. We got a three hour um, podcast and you'll you'll hear that I'm getting my own circular saw cool which, which awesome. is telling us that we're near the end of the show yeah <laughs> but uh um, but yeah reader mail yeah so um this is uh from actually joe kohler on hey. twitter uh editor um, i believe of of haywire mag i believe his title is editor but of, of yes. haywire magazine a, an important and prominent uh game criticism website you should check that out yeah i wanted to give his twitter handle but it turns out i don't remember it so i am typing his it's just joe kohler i think I'll look it up. You, you read it's, the mail. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, so, Joe writes in. <clears throat> hey, GSSB gang. Long time, first time. I'm writing in because Games of Empire has been a, been a formative book for me personally. When I first started reading academic texts about games, I was surprised to see how strongly the institutional background of scholars informed their perspective on the medium. People who came to it from established fields like literary criticism often felt no need to adapt their toolkit in the slightest or even acknowledge material differences, while those who were more directly interested in games often got way too excited about the, quote, revolutionary potential of this new art form, perhaps out of a need to justify their own interest to the, need, to the powers that be. Games of Empire stood out to me as the first book I read that took a holistic view of games without being overly optimistic about them. My question is whether outside factors like university politics affect academic writing on games, and if this is something you have noticed in any of the books you've read for the show, do game studies still have to jostle for their place within academia, or is this a relic of ludology versus narratology? Best Joe. Also, postscript. Obviously, it's fine for people to approach games from different fields and perspectives, but to me, there's a difference between saying, I'm interested in this game as a text, and saying, games are basically books. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Um, so that's Joe's question. Okay. Joe's Twitter think? handle is Joe K-L-L-R. Okay. I, I was saying that to stall for answering this question. <laughs> um, I think certainly university politics are involved. I think that uh it might be difficult so think of it this way if you are at what was the what's the name of the institute the something creative institute yeah uh institute for creative technologies yeah ict yeah if you're at the university where that is it might be difficult to write this book Mm -hmm. because there there will be deans and provosts and presidents who are massively invested emotionally and financially in the uh, success of that project, which is not to say that anyone would ever like. I, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a pretty big. Um, in my experience, people's academic freedom is rarely in, actually infringed upon. 
I just think there would be social pressure in a basic way of like making your life livable in the communications or media studies department um, to not write a book that says, hey, the choices my department or that my college have done are bad. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's a real social pressure. That's the, the same pressure that would exist if you were a blogger who was working at a major corporation or if you're a Twitter um, you know, if you work at Twitter and you're on Twitter and the kinds of things you say, um, I think people are, are actively afraid of making their jobs harder. And I think that's universal. Um, <laughs> and, you know what I mean? And I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily fault, but you know, you can look to someone like Sarah Ahmed, uh, and her work is on the feminist killjoys blog and the kind of publication she's done about that, about how taking seriously at the university level, the kinds of things that happen at the university that infringe on your ability to think and do your job, uh, that that turns you into a person who the university doesn't like. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, you know, she she kind of uh, famously quit slash was driven out of her last academic position and st- has kind of been doing speaking tours and writing and things like that in the meantime. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think she was fired from that job. You know what I mean? I, because there's no way to fire her for that. But there was they created the social conditions into which her job was unworkable. Right. Well, and again, it's like it's it's a classic kind of neoliberal thing, right? Like yes. the, you're you're not just like straight up disciplined in, in like a medieval fashion. Right. Uh, the conditions under which you could thrive are just made very, very scarce. Yes, it's it's. Well, yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Uh, it's the, the biopolitics language for that that we talked yeah. about earlier. It's it's the letting die. Right. You just don't become a privileged person in your university structure or whatever. So I I don't know if there are I don't know if there are strong camps as there once were in game studies. You know, Mm -hmm. the ludology versus narratology. I'm I'm wary of even reducing things to that that kind of moment, as we've talked about in this in this podcast several times. But I mean, obviously, there are ways of going about things. And I think if you push people who are former game developers you know, who have entered into academia, their way of thinking about what is good work and productive and, and positive work for the field is radically different than people who come from traditional humanities backgrounds. Um, mm-hmm. And that creates some friction. I think probably if you're the only theorist in a department of people who are extru- who are developers, that probably constrains the type of work that you do. But I think mm-hmm. that's all normal social stuff. I don't think that right. is, is unique academic pressure. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would say... I have a similar sense. I think part of this is probably because even though even though there are still probably like there are still forces with, within the academy who are like video games, um, I do think we've kind of like reached the point where it's like yeah, video games like video games are happening and they're things we need to talk about, um, and so there is probably less of a kind of uh, weird methodological jockeying going on. Like people, I think, are kind of open to the idea that like yeah you can look at games and you can look at them from multiple perspectives from like a systems design theory or from a narrative perspective or something like that um and i know even like because i come out of like the literary criticism side of this um i had the exact same kind of feeling about how literary scholars had talked about games previously as just like another form of a book or something Mm -hmm. um and currently right we're seeing a lot of uh, what like what in Catherine haley's calls um uh, media specific analysis um which is something that i try to implement a lot in my games writing where i think about you know uh even if i'm just talking about the story what does it mean that this story is asking me to intervene in it or like what does it mean for me to like 
you know, think about this story, but also that this isn't how this story could have gone, that there are other mm-hmm. endings or like playing it for the third time and getting a different ending, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I also just to actually highlight something um, that Joe did point out that I think we skipped over. Uh, the beginning of this book does talk about this quite explicitly in terms of um, like people who tend to be like uh games as sort of overly like emancipatory or like yes uh, right they 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 come in and they're like yeah no there is this like sort of overcompensation that is happening in the field where people who are who want to study games um like either are extremely negative right like that's sort of the first wave like these games are these new fads that are rotting our kids brains um and then like games as like this new beautiful technology that will show us the horizon to the future uh like they want to temper their position right they want to be like yes there are bad aspects of games right not just games themselves but like how they're produced and also there are good and sort of um exciting things about games right games do show us other ways of living or thinking or they could do this um but we don't have to be their cheerleaders for that perspective because in this sense right they are no different than the 18th century novel or the 20th century film yeah 100 percent. uh yeah and that happens on on introduction page XXIII or 23 <laughs> as, as we might say yeah, uh, yeah there, there's kind of the history of academic game studies um, so yeah I don't know I mean I, I would say that if there are any kind of like intellectual constraints that are happening in game studies it is rarely at the level of like peer to peer although that obviously happens but if <laughs> someone is showing up to your panel talk or reading your book in a profoundly uncharitable way that to my mind that is their problem at this point yeah <laughs> like i i just started a, a new job at a university uh last month at a, a, a new university that i was not uh, employed at before and i have introduced myself and been introduced as a video game scholar at, at you know in every social context despite the fact that I'm, i don't know if i am fully a video game scholar um but i've been introduced that way and i've yet to get like a side eye or an oh really or whatever and but 10 years ago i would have gotten a little bit of a side eye um and so you know i i definitely think there are things that are changing where i don't have to be a cheer, cheerleader of that kind of thing and that's why it's particularly this is this is i know that we're at the three hour mark but i want to say this every now and again i still see game study scholars and, and scholars of our generation michael of, of people who have just finished or or recently out um or are about to be finished and they will share these articles from like the New York Times or wherever that's like, new study says that games don't cause violence. And that's great that those studies are being done, but it seems to me that game studies as a discipline, even through only the nine books that we have read so far for this podcast, or, or the eight books that we've read for this podcast, uh, big nine, um, mm-hmm. even in those, it seems like obviously this is so much more complicated to like, does does this make you mean or not right they, <laughs> like they produce you as a full human being maybe it doesn't matter one way or the other if it like makes you twitch with your right eyeball or whatever right um, yeah but but that's that's an aside but that that makes that bums me out I, w- I would love if we could like have a more productive conversation than than sharing whatever reactionary article that shows up on the most recent you know i don't know yeah. We need to we need to move beyond the drill tweet where it's like, you know, Dad, your baby brother is missing. Please help us find him. And then you respond, "Did you read the news? Gaming is a legitimate hobby now." <laughs> 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 uh, 
Yeah, that one. I thought this. <laughs> I thought this was gonna be the the barbecue tweet, but no, no, no. I just I still think like whenever any one of those articles shows up in like a major publication, I always just think of like you know like this family emergency, and then like the drill character who is of course like his avatar, this like weird pixelated uh, Jack Nicholson, like swiveling around in his chair <laughs> and being like, "Did you hear the news? Gaming is a legitimate hobby now." <laughs> Um, where can they find you on the internet, Michael? Uh, you can find me online at sign Warren is dead. That's on Twitter. Also, if you ever want to send us a question or some sort of comment, you can reach us at game studies, study buddies at gmail.com. That is game studies, study buddies at gmail.com. And you can tweet at us at ranged touch R E R A N G E D. T O U C H. Uh, if you would, if your question is more than or less than 240 characters, um, if it's if it's an easy one, uh, we're ha- happy to add things like that. If you have comments from this episode, uh, we don't really read comments from the previous episodes at the top, but we don't really get a lot of them, uh, even though people do talk about this on social media and stuff. So if you have things you want us to talk about about this episode, just send them to us, and we'll put it at the top of next episode or the end or something like that. Um, this entire apparatus is supported by Patreon. Uh, you can look down in the description below this episode in, in your podcast reader uh, to support us on Patreon. We are at a kind of significant amount of money, which is really great. That that just means we can do more stuff in the Range Touch Network. Um, uh, we don't really have a next stretch goal, but uh, our, our current stretch goal that was at $400 has been met, and so that's uh, me and Danny, uh, who I also do Mages and Murder Dads with. Um, that's us talking about tabletop role-playing games uh, and kind of strategies for DMs and our personal kind of philosophies of running games. That's called Helpful Homunculi, um, and that new episode will probably actually already be out by the time you're listening to this, so uh, you can go check that out. I'll put a, a link to that down in the description below this as well um so if you enjoy the show please consider supporting us you can support us for as little as a dollar a month at three dollars a month you get the thing that if you listen to this show exclusively you probably care about which is you get access to michael and my notes all of the notes for the show are currently up there right now um you can check them out i make a nice pdf per episode uh well i say nice it's a pdf (laughs) of everything it's not particularly artful or anything um but you can see lavishly produced pdf exactly it's all that text on a white background (laughs) um but if you're curious about the things that we keyed into in this book that we didn't quite get to or if you want to see all the page numbers uh that we referenced or uh anything like that i mean both michael and i both took five pages of notes for this and we obviously you know we talk about this on the show but we definitely key into different things in these books so you can kind Mm -hmm. of you can get our more in-depth read if you do that for three dollars a month at five dollars a month you get access to the special patreon podcast where danny and i talk about uh just whatever the hell we want uh but it's a fun time people like it (laughs) all right well i think that's the end of our episode this time we haven't chosen a book yet uh for next time and rather than doing those deliberations on air like we did last time uh uh i'll just let you know on twitter so check it out on twitter um at range touch or at c Kunzelman, which is me uh and you can find out about our next book bye <laughs>